Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to another episode of Remap Radio. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and this is episode 19 for October 6th, 2023. Today we are joined by Patrick Klavik. Hello. And we welcome our friend, colleague, and one of the few podcasters whose empire rivals my own, Cameron Kunzelman. Hello. Um, I'm, I'm here getting the deets and the info to uh, take, the, take the enemy out from the inside. I'm, oh my I'm, god. Uh, is this where I'm, we talk uh, about like who uh, gets to pass around Austin Walker this week uh, to try and juice right. the numbers? <laughs> that's, right. <laughs> that's right. No, Austin brings our numbers down. That's the, I'm, that's, that's the line I'm going to go with. Is Austin's Austin actually, podcast Poison Walker? Yeah, this is just yeah. we, uh, you know, good friend to everyone, but we're really doing him a solid, honestly. Oh, you you finally there. revealed the dark secret. Yeah, he just needs it, you know. Um, and, and range touch was there to, uh, lend a helping hand. Uh, so, so Cam real quick, uh, what is the, what is the rundown these days of, uh, the various, the various Kunzelman products out there that, that we can, we can promote. Is it, is it I'm here at Kunzelmart, you know, I'm on the shelf. I'm looking like, Ooh, Mm. like Mm -hmm. some Stephen King vibes from this one, but what's Mm. over here? Well, you know, Patrick, we call it Kmart, actually, uh, <laughs> after after private equity destroyed that beloved business of the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I was able to snatch that up for a cool $250,000, and I've really been using that in my personal brand. Uh, yeah, so over at Range Touch, it's really, it's it's not me, it's uh, everyone at Range Touch. We are still uh, Danny, co-founder originally, Michael Lutz as well. Uh, and Austin is on our show, Shelved by Genre. I imagine if you are listening to this, you're probably familiar with that already. But that's where we are reading through genre literature bit by bit. Uh, we started with Book of the New Sun, this like titanic, monstrous science fiction fantasy thing um, that we were all excited to read. And we are three quarters of the way through that now or almost there, which is really cool. Um, we got a couple more books of that to do. But in the future, we're going to do stuff like William Gibson's Sprawl Trilogy and Le Guin's Earthsea, like big genre stuff that people care about and they want to hear people talk about. So we do that. we got Game Study Study Buddies, which is where Michael and I talk about works of game studies. Um, we just did the Summer of Agency. What the hell's going on when people talk about agency? Which is pretty fun. We've got Just King Things, which, Patrick, you're alluding to, which is we're talking about Stephen King novels in publication order. We're about to... The next episode will be on The Regulators, one of the worst books I've ever read. Yeah, I've um, heard nothing but tremendous things about The Regulators. I've not been graced with reading this biblical text. I've but, never um, heard of that one. And usually I think I do end up hearing about bad Stephen King's. It's below the like, it's not so bad it's good, you know what I mean? Like, which is, you know, when people talk about cell, you know what I mean? People are made of zombies by their use of cell phones. You might be like, oh, Tommy Knockers, um, right. I right. feel like it's so bad it's good. It's like achieved that sort of status. Like, it's almost like no, it, Tommy Knockers I, isn't the, you want to no. read it just because you, like, you've heard so much about how bad it is. I think Regulators is just outright a, a miserable read yes. from what it i understand is miser- miserable is a perfect word for it what's the premise uh, that, again do you want to give like, like uh, people know what that book is about he wasn't no. inspired by the song right 
no, probably okay. not. I hope not. <laughs> he was inspired by Western films and John Wayne. It uh, it's so offensive on face that I might <laughs> I don't even want to summarize it. Like well, it's that level of you, like listeners. Geez. If you want to find out more about regulators, uh, yeah. just go through the door of Just King Things. That's oh, it's right. a Bach. I forget. It's a Bachman you. one, right? So that's it, where it, that's yes. where he gets his uh, like I mean. You know, the racism is in the regular King text, but like Bachman's where he's like, I need to let my violent juices out. Uh. Yeah, kind of. This is yes. This one is an even you would hope, you know, you read it and you go, huh? you know, I'm looking for an angry white guy who's got nothing to lose, you know, because that's what the Bachman books are all about. And yeah, that's not even in there. Um, no, it's I, anyway, it's just not very good. It, okay. It's ba- uh, top line. What if the Power Ranger showed up? And killed everybody on a suburban block. Well, you're selling me again. Shit. I want to read that like, book. Why did you make it sound so fucking awesome? Sorry. I didn't mean to. I meant to make it sound bad. Um, but but that's just, just the beginning. And also, what if uh, the Power Rangers, you know, like opened up their trucks in this scenario? They don't mm-hmm. have, you know, like, um, what are they called? Zords? I forget what they are. They don't yeah, have like the big right. animals. You nailed it. Mm-hmm. Great, good. I had to really go deep on that one. What if they didn't have that? What if they had trucks and then you could look in the window of the truck and there'd be like a Power Ranger and then a Civil War general riding beside them, and they were both unified in violence and using big guns to blow people apart. I got, I got to admit, you're not helping your yeah. Your you're, just, oh, no. you're just making Remap want to start a book club where we only read the regulators. I told you I'm Trojan horsing you, right? I'm like, oh, this book, it's bad, but it's got these murderous power. Maybe you should start that book club. Think oh no, it. what the, there's some Civil War general vibes. To some <laughs> yeah. of these, some of these assholes. Yeah, there's there's wolves and stuff too, and John Wayne. There's a whole film script did it of a tv episode that doesn't exist um that's true uh the so yeah we got that and then we we're finishing up we're about to finish up too much future which is our show about all the fallout games uh where we kind of like critical podcast our way through it the final episode on fallout 76 is coming soon probably by the end of the month one episode because that game ain't good i was gonna ask where because i think the obviously that game comes out of the gate pretty broken uninspired Mm. people don't like it but it has seemed to have as an outsider looking in Mm -hmm. it's never touched it broadly people seem to like it's like achieved acceptable uh, this game's fine Mm -hmm. status like is that where you landed but just also like that that does not raise the bar enough to be good yeah it's just like a pretty standard mmo you know with the kind of buildy some of the buildy mechanics from fallout 4 so like if you like you know, lots of people who have described it to me and talked about it have called it a quote-unquote podcast game. Uh, you're right. It's like a thing to do that's, you know, minimum viable fun product. And, like, that is not what I play video games for. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I can, I'm not playing video games to, like, waste time in my life. But uh, if you are into that, I think it is a very acceptable version of that kind of game. Um, but, uh, yeah, neither Michael nor I were, like, super into that. And so it gets one single episode. Partially, it was a little preview, partially the reason that happened. They got one single episode as we were playing together, and we got a, an event that said, the Mothman is here. And I was like, oh, the Mothman. And then we looked, and you had to be max level to, to go and, <laughs> and, you know, and engage with the Mothman. And we weren't. We were, like, level four. And I was like, it's going to take me a long time to get max level. And that, in and of itself, was, like, offensive to me, right? Like, how dare you dangle the Mothman in front of me uh, and don't let me go talk to him or whatever shoot him probably 
But yeah, anyway. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's interesting. Throwing a, throwing a tantrum at the mall, being refused right. to see the Mothman. That's exactly right. Parents, children averting their eyes. Mm-hmm. That's right. They were, I'm too. You're telling me I'm too tall. I'm too heavy for the Mothman. <laughs> I can't sit on the. Mo- I have to crouch beside the Mothman and get my photo taken. Not on my watch. Um, but yeah, so that we got a lot going on over there. Patreon.com slash range touch. Got that in here. We got a bunch of bonus episodes and stuff like that, too. Uh, we can't currently talk about movies, but one day when they impeach seems like finally seems comes like we're yeah, table. seems like we're inching sag after seems like they're they're getting there. So hopefully in the next couple it's of weeks, hope. hopefully in the yeah. next couple of weeks, you can listen to remap talk about Armageddon. Congrats. <laughs> that was a banger, as it turns out. <laughs> it was. That ended up being a a really good conversation. (laughs) Opened with everyone just grumbling over my pick of Armageddon because we couldn't even find the fun in, like, what are we going to do two hours later? Like, still talking about Armageddon. Yeah, we we did that for uh, uh, Homestuck Made This World bonus episode. And, like, yeah, the movie's extremely weird uh, in every good Michael Bay way. Uh, But no one could talk about it. Until they and PGP makes a deal. Let it, let it, let it out. Let the Armageddon podcast out. That's right. Uh, so before we get into games, we should talk about the news. Uh, another miserable week in the games industry, but uh, maybe maybe un- like along some unusual axes this time around. I guess the, the big news this week uh, is that a number of former Ubisoft executives were uh, apparently like brought in for questioning. Uh, you know, some some reported as they, they're arrested. Uh, we don't know yet what the status of charges is. But Patrick, you want to talk through like exactly what seems to have happened here and, and where these executives are coming from within the company? Yeah, like obviously we have a lot of information remains to come out about the specific details here. But um, yeah, three were arrested and two were placed in custody. So there's like actually like varying levels of uh, <laughs> I'm in danger uh, for the for these executives. Um, several of them were executives called out during sort of like the uh, 2020 uh, reckoning might be uh, too positive a spin to put on it, but uh, uh, expose of Ubisoft's sort of like corrupt and toxic executive hierarchy, allegations of harassment and discrimination. Um, you know, we're talking you know, sort of high, really high level folks in the Ubisoft establishment, a, a former chief creative officer, an ex-VP of editorial and creative services, like people that are, you know, really high on on the food chain um, that left the company several years ago, and usually that's sort of the last you hear of it. Um, like people leave, they go and do other things, and as long as they are kind of quiet and disappear, the world sort of moves on because we our understanding is it's very difficult to actually that's our form of justice is well, you've been publicly shamed into having to do your work in the future anonymously as opposed to actually seeing some sort of material justice, which who knows? Like, it's the French legal system. Like, I'm not going to pretend I'm a, a legal expert uh, here, but uh, it does at least, I don't know, it feels better than situations we're normally in here, which is that, wow, like, this actually went to the authorities, itself a <laughs> complicated institution to expect any uh, justice from. Uh, and here, um, like, several have actually been arrested or are being questioned. Uh Speaking to a French newspaper, uh, Liberation, the 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 the, plaint- the lawyer for the plaintiffs um, said the case. Uh, I'm quoting from uh, Games Industry Biz at this point. So the case goes beyond individual behavior and quote reveals systemic 
sexual violence. Uh, Ubisoft itself uh, said that they had, quote, no knowledge of what has been shared and therefore can't comment. Um, this does actually come after an investigation into the company. So this isn't as though, ah, it's a couple of whistleblowers and they're bringing people out the front door to have them questions. This, this follows uh, the French police looking into the company for the past year, which would give you some sort of confidence that there is more evidence and uh, conclusions to draw from an action like this. But uh, we don't have those details uh, at this time um, to, to elaborate on the, the fact that uh, there's a plaintiff's lawyer cited in this is interesting to me because if it's a, I don't know how, like how the French legal system works. Like typically plaintiffs mean it's a civil action in U S courts. So here uh, it seems like the arrests come following complaints by. So, okay. Most of the game history is not unionized here. This part of Ubisoft, Ubisoft is a company in which parts of the company are unionized, including this French division of the company. Um, and the arrests follow complaints that came from the union okay. to police and then was handled by a public prosecutor. So, so it's like there's a parallel civil action happening or like a parallel, like the, the workers represented in a, in a case against Ubisoft and have representation regarding their complaints. And that has spun that spun up an investigation that has now borne these. these that arrests. is as far as that what I can tell. Be, yeah. Yeah. That appears to be um, uh, the case. Like, you know, uh, it seems like by having the union, they were able to make a more formal complaint that allowed an actual investigation to happen, which has now led to, you know, arrests at the company, which is are meaningful steps. It's also striking that the arrests are going in uh, France from French prosecutors, given that a lot of stuff that we heard centered on the Montreal uh, offices as well, in part because they have so many employees there, uh, and so many so many executives at Ubisoft were were tied to those offices, and you know there were there were allegations there uh, as well. People were people resigned. Uh, there the former head of PR uh, Stone Chin uh, was uh, accused for 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 years, uh, you know, of sexual assault, and was uh, you know fi- finally I think terminated or resigned his post like back in that. Again, like almost reckoning uh, in in 2020, but it makes me wonder if like the French police are taking action here, like what's happening across the corporate, uh, the entire corporate body uh, at, at this point. Because yeah, we don't have a great sense of their like actual, like it, well, you know, as far as I can tell, like this is the only formal sort of like investigation occurring from like yeah. a legal body as opposed to. What happened, Ubisoft, where lots of people were ousted from the company and there was promise of, you know, and well, we're going to bring in outside investigators and we're going to, you know, issue reports and all that. But it's always hard to tell, like, how much of this is just PR by the, the companies to like, yeah, we'll get rid of like the really bad ones. Like, bye, like, OK, they're gone. But like, how does that actually lead to systemic change, actual justice for people who committed, uh, you know, potentially criminal acts? Like, you know, like it's I wonder if there is something, as you point out, unique about like it's happening here in France for a reason as opposed and there's reasons it's not happening elsewhere. And it's not because potential criminal action wasn't committed elsewhere, but just there are unique circumstances that allow this set of processes to play out in in France, Um, which is in some ways encouraging and also in other ways like, oh, well. Everyone else is just left to hope that Ubisoft comes to the light and like decides to act uh, 
uh, better than they have in the past, which is a not where you want to be. You don't want to hope that companies will act better. You want to make them act better. Yeah, I think a lot of the complaints about Ubisoft following those those allegations was that with the exception of some like statements, it made that the height of the crisis, like uh, Eve Gimon and, and uh, you know, the entire company's messaging uh, infrastructure was, was very eager to move on from it, understandably. But I remember, you know, for a couple of years following uh, every time Ubisoft had a, an event, you'd see comments from like uh, organizations representing Ubisoft workers or ex Ubisoft workers that uh, once again, the company was kind of, stonewalling the you know the 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 entire uh like set of allegations against them that they just were not they didn't seem to be making substantive changes uh within the company and then you know publicly were were kind of eager to draw a line under it so it's um it's it's surprising to see this come back in the news and yeah even more surprising to see it come back in the news with uh actual like criminal action taking place so that's um it's a striking I, bit of news. Yeah, and I, and I will say when this news first came out that um, there was a certain amount of venom I saw from folks who have been, are at, or have been at Ubisoft, quote tweeting and responding to it, which makes me, all I can go off of that is inferences and vibes to a certain extent, but you certainly got the feeling that some of these folks or stories were perhaps known in the company um or had certain reputations and for this action to occur did seem validating to a lot of people that have been connected to that company in the past which itself is like really encouraging to see that folks that have either been directly or indirectly impacted by the actions of these and the folks that they allowed under them to do to do things like you know actually seeing something done is has got to feel good you know the other the other major bit of news that I think we saw this week is part of the broader landscape of uh, layoffs uh, across the industry, but these ones did seem to unfold a little bit differently. Uh, there were reported layoffs at Naughty Dog, but once again we end up in the you know what's a layoff and what's a contract not being renewed or terminated uh, type situation. The sort of two tier. Uh, you know, class system of the games industry is sort of front and center here. Yeah, this is from Kotaku uh, reporting that uh, Naughty Dog uh, has uh, laid off, uh, or again, as you said, like that terminology gets complicated. Like, I think for, yes, maybe if that is not <laughs> the exact legalese, like it is what's happening here, right? Like people are losing, losing their jobs. Um, but the thing about being a contractor is that it's easier to take that job away from you and you don't have to give them uh, any sort of promised uh, benefits as a result of that. So uh, according to Kotaku, uh, at least 25 developers were part of a downsizing at Naughty Dog. Um, full-time staff apparently have not been touched, and and the studio's headcount, at least as of July, was uh, roughly over 400. Uh, and uh, specifically, uh, Kotaku was told that no severance is being offered to those being laid off and that impacted developers, um, as well as remaining employees, uh, they're being kind of told to keep the news uh, quiet. Uh, and plus, it's not like, well, I've lost my job. Time to go find something else. Like They're working through the end of October and have been asked to keep working through the end of the month. Um, and, and Sony offered no, no comment. This comes alongside uh, part of the reason that Sony acquired Bungie, other than to have kind of like bring Destiny into their internal portfolio, despite being still a multi-platform game, 
was to do sort of critical and business analysis of the live service games that is are a huge part of it's something we didn't really talk about when we discussed Jim Ryan leaving Sony is that one of the legacies that Jim Ryan is going to have uh, within Sony is that he put the company on a path to do a huge investment in live services. Um, and one of like, there's a horizon live services game in development, like, you know, rumors that, you know, God of war is getting into, you know, some multiplayer stuff. Basically the company is betting on that in a number of different areas with different franchises that are within its orbit. And Bungie looked at Naughty Dog's uh, much anticipated multiplayer uh, expansion um, or, or it used to be a just part of uh, the Last of Us games and now has to become its own multiplayer thing that was going to live on for years and in, in perpetuity in theory. Uh, that game is essentially it's called On Ice um, is how it's being characterized, which is just like a fancy way of saying it's it's canceled probably, but that it's not it's not really an active development um, or at least it's probably not likely to be saved. So I wouldn't be shocked if some of these some of this downsizing is is connected to that project being wound down, especially given if Naughty Dog is working on a Last of Us Part Three or whatever the studio is working on now is you know unlikely to be at the stage where QA and other departments are as heavily involved. But yeah, it's. Again, like it's part of a running theme that we've talked about on on the podcast, which is that this is 2023 is going to in in history's record. We'll look back in 10 years and go, man, this is like 1996, like one of the best years ever for video games. And you're going to forget because this is not the part that's going to be remembered. It's not going to be top of line. It's going to be what was your favorite game that came out that year? Was it Baldur's Gate 3 or was it Tears of the Kingdom? And you're going to forget that the, the video game industry was making record profits was like bigger than ever and yet like people were being laid off left and right um due to crass and cynical and miscalculations on the part of a number of executives and folks at the top uh and hey i don't want to forget this uh you know the the layoffs were a few weeks ago at this point but uh ea and bioware done fucked it up after the fact are you getting sued yeah, they're getting sued by a bunch of the people they laid off uh, with, at least the way this was uh, re- reported uh, in in sort of the press release about this. The uh, seven, em- seven employees uh, with an average of 14 years of Bioware have refused to accept Bioware's uh, like severance offers. And uh, this comes from, I think it's uh, Ethan, uh, Ethan Gatch uh, from Kotaku, who we just cited, uh, you know, Ethan's mm-hmm. article on the uh, Naughty Dog layoffs uh, had some of the uh, statements about the about the Bioware lawsuit. But yeah, it looks like Bioware attempted to lowball their employees severance agreements. And so uh, a number of them are suing because there's precedent in Canadian courts uh, that employees are entitled to a certain level of severance tied to length of service yeah one month of severance per year of service including the full value of of their benefits and apparently what they were offered was uh, according to the lawyer um bringing the the suit quote significantly less than this amount so 
you know, we can't speak to this situation, but we can speak to exactly <laughs> what this looks like when a company does this. Uh, so some of the things that happen when you are laid off is, you know, you have the meeting with the uh, George Clooney character from Up in the Air, uh, except way less charismatic and way less inspiring, uh, telling you about how good your your new life is going to be. And then you get, uh, you know, once, uh, like, uh, effective the date of your termination, you get a severance agreement. Uh, and you don't have to sign that. The severance agreement is kind of like, well, here's what we'll give you, but you got to sign it if you want to get your severance. And that is, we were, we were fortunate in this case, we had uh, union lawyers able to review a lot of this stuff. And the first severance agreement we got looked good. It looked because it was tied to what they were obliged to provide according to the terms of the contract of the vice union. It was good, it was good enough that the running joke between Rob and I had been, they can buy this job from my cold, dead hands because I'm taking that fucking severance on the way out. Like, Rob and I have been, you know... I've been here the longest of the two of us, but like we qualified for essentially like max severance, three months, like full pay. And it's like summer of Robin Patrick, like you lay us <laughs> off and like lay Although, back. And the standard Canadian terms blow ours out of the water. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. But we were getting by- <laughs> six months effectively for per year of service. Uh, and these folks are getting, um, you know, a uh, sorry, we were, we were getting like a month. Uh, less than a month per year of service. Uh, Correct. Effectively. I think two, essentially two weeks per yeah. per year of of time at the company. Yeah. But later, the company sent amendments about the severance agreement. They tried like it's it was the most like trying to pull a fast one thing where they were like, "Hey, just just one more thing, just that old severance agreement. Oh, there are a few things wrong with it. Can you just sign this update? Get this whole um um. We don't have any money." And like this, it's like, I don't know, they call it bankruptcy. And so just, we don't want to give money. you. We paid, our, we paid it all to ourselves <laughs> uh, right before, right before filing bankruptcy. But so, the, but the thing is, um, it, it seems like out of the gate, BioWare and EA were offering terms that were just not industry standard, not, not ca- like Canadian labor law standard. Uh, and so it looks like these folks just straight up, like didn't sign them uh, and have moved to take legal action. Something they call out too is that uh, pretty standard for the notoriously secretive games industry, but they were not going to be allowed to show any of their portfolio work on what they've done for upcoming Bioware games, uh, you know, namely Dreadwolf. And so there's a combination of you're getting screwed on, uh, on Severance, and then also what do you have to show for the last, like, few years of your working life? Nothing. You, you literally can't show it. Uh, so they are they are suing um, their, their their representation. Uh, obviously, it's their statements. Thinks they have a good case because there's legal precedent for uh, this being standard terms in a layoff like this. Currently, I'm also clinging to that clinging to that raft. Uh, our our oh, yeah, we went, rep- we took we took different paths. Um, uh, <laughs> I, basically, the company offered like, hey, we'll give you. Um, like less than half of your severance, but you can have it right now. Like, would you like a little treat? Would you? And I said, yeah, I'm about to buy a car and I don't trust this fucking company as far as I can throw them. And so, yeah, just give me this and I yeah. will walk away. And the other option was see if they get through bankruptcy and you get the full, and I'm rooting for you, Rob, I'm rooting for yeah. you, but you went through door, you went through door two. Mm, thinking like a hedge fund. 
You got, you got, you got to think about that risk. That was basically that was around. basically it. Like the downside risk was losing a few grand uh, after tax because because severance is taxed like a bonus, which is just one of the most like at least in the U.S. It is one of the most ridiculous things where it's like you lose your job, so this is the money you need to like make ends meet theoretically for a while, and it is treated as if it's this like awesome windfall that like <laughs> Uncle Sam needs half of that. Yeah, and it's your golden parachute, Rob. They gotta tax it. <laughs> it's absurd. That's progressive. So, so I was just uh, so I was like, it's just not, you know, the the reduced severance. By the time I could actually spend any of it, it's not that much money. So I can, what the hell? I'll I'll see if the the full severance comes out. At least that'll that'll move the needle. Um, but and also there's just kind of the principle of the thing of like, no, no, you're going to if you have if you have the means to pay me at the end of all this, uh, you you should. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, it's I, I think the thing that strikes me about this Bioware thing is that. It costs so little to not generate headlines like this for a company like EA, like this was already going to be an ugly and unpopular move. You already did the thing of like having to put out the statement that like we understand a lot of you love and admire Bioware's work we do too we just don't need the people who did that work and really kind of resent that this studio exists uh so we're going to to cut it down and then on top of that then they're going to mess with the expected severance of a lot of these like longtime workers um it's very, very petty stuff. Um, obviously, we're keeping an eye on that on that legal action as it as it goes through. But just surprising to see that to see that come that come back up. Um, this is a this is a sidebar, really yeah. quick. As part of that, I, I have a question. This is probably a question for Patrick, as the intrepid reporter here. Mm, mm-hmm. Dreadwolf is that a is that a working title or a final title? Oh, that's a final title. Yeah, that's garbage. <laughs> That's one of the worst things I've ever. It didn't heard. feel heard. good coming off the tongue. No, I, I am, I am uh, kind of checked out on what Bioware is up to at this point. You know, you, 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 a couple things in a row have not really been for me, even though you know historically really into the product. But uh, yeah, that's one of the worst titles I've ever heard for anything. That's just that's really really bad. Um, yeah, that's disappointing. I think if they were going to change, I mean, it, you know, the, it was the game was originally announced years ago at this point right. at the Game right. Awards with just a like cinematic you know your Mm. obligatory cinematic teaser but they've they've stuck with that 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 game's in the final phases of development i'm sure that's like part of the reason these layoffs even occurred was the thought that oh well we're 90 percent of the way there like we don't need you folks anymore um because that game will probably come out sometime next year hang on okay because this is how i remember it because i was surprised to hear that title cam yeah what if the game were called the dread wolf rises uh, you know, Rob, it's not 2007, so that probably would not be good. That okay, would be wor- okay. That well, would be so somehow what you here, Cam? The Dreadwolf has to be in the title. Oh, that, oh! I didn't realize there was a Dreadwolf stipulation that we needed to have a Dreadwolf. No, he's got a toxic writer the- on that contract. Right. And years <laughs> of Canadian precedent. Oh, right. Uh, the courts, the courts um, ruled. Like, unfortunately, there was a lawsuit right. a couple years back about the Dreadwolf and the Dreadwolf one. Right, right. Uh, no, that's just as bad. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I'll at least do some alts, right? You know, Dreadwolf Moon. You could lean in to, to make it more corny. That would probably be the only way to repair it. You can't just call it, like, more, more Dragon Age, Dragon Age 4. 
we couldn't do that. No one else. They, no one thought. They hate this. the. They hate the numerals. Now they hate. They hate doing numbers. Now it's like they don't like calling attention to the fact that you only just keep making new entries in existing franchises. So you, uh, you just yeah. like, boy, do I know about that? Yeah. So you just sort of <laughs> evade it. It's like this isn't right. this isn't like the fourth or fifth one of these, the eighth or twelfth. Right. This is right. uh, a whole wholly unique experience. It's mm-hmm. one or the other. You can't be at like four or five or you have to be a cosmic joke like Final Fantasy. And it's like the number right. is like, oh, you're just making this up. You know, or like this Call is of silly. Duty four with that numeral that was just four, four things. I mean, here's the here's the like a real actual alt that would be better. Either dread you're like, uh, you know, Dragon Age colon dread. That's OK to me. Colon wolf. That's OK. <laughs> Trek Both of those are fine. Colin Wolf. 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 I don't know. It's got to be. What does that tell Dread you Wolf? about the game? Dragon what does that what communicate? What does Dread Wolf tell you about the game? I can't wait for it seems Dragon Age Dread. I'm not, I don't like Wolf. to be in the Dragon position of, of of defending Dread Wolf. This is not where I want it to be. But I I gotta I gotta say I don't know that. So now this, I'm this being year attacked. we're releasing. We've spent two hundred right. million dollars <laughs> developing the new. Dragon yeah. Age universe in the Dragon Age universe. Right. Dragon we had to Age. fire so many people to oh! get this thing done. What's that? Oh, it's Dragon Age. Whoa. <laughs> you have just pitched a better version of an onstage <laughs> presentation than basically anything from the past decade. And you know Keely, that. Keely's out here that howling at the moon into a microphone. Come on. Can you imagine it? I can. I would pre-order. That's big for me. God, what, what, if, what if we go that route and then somehow it ends up with like Jeff Keeley getting mauled on a stage because they just take <laughs> yes. it too far. They commit to the yes. bit. Yes. And Some EA exec comes on with a wolf on a chain. And it in just retrospect, goes after it was not Keeley. a great asset. Yeah. <laughs> Keeley is dressed up in a full like bacon outfit yep. selling uh, smoked McGriddles or whatever he's doing. Just goes after him. Takes him out. Rips his cowboy boot right off him. I don't and he's know just Jeff he's Keely just motioning like, keep it going, don't cut away, because like right. Jeff's a pro, he knows. Yeah, he like, knows. This is a big video games moment. Well, yes, it's, it's all part of a performance capture for the next Kojima game, anyway. So, um, like, <laughs> we're gonna look, get Keeley's death in here, uh, come hell or high water. <laughs> here's the reality, and this is, I, I think, this is probably true, or or if not, uh, you know, it sounds true. Is there anything that did more for Jeff Keeley's career than the Dorito image? Right. Is there? That's the only reason I know who that guy is, you know, in my younger days. Well, I think for, I think the final Keeley. hours, because uh, that's him, right? It's the final. Yeah, hours of course. Of oh, that's some of the best games writing. You know, you, you read the one on what? Uh, Daikatana is the one he did. Um, I'm pretty sure. Or maybe he did. He, he did. Yeah, he, did so. he did. He did. He's done a bunch of Valve games, but mostly it's been Valve, right? I don't know. If but he's I, done think, a but non, I think what you could Valve say one. is that like the Doritos picture ends up serving him well because where his career was going it was going to be i'm ready to play ball and right, with right. with corporate yeah. sponsorship and well that comes the during the, the the game awards or whatever they were called being on was it tnt or what what, what, were, the, what were they on before i forget which network uh, uh spike spike wow yeah spike um yeah because i think that's that same era in which the dorito pope meme yeah. uh emerges uh yeah i mean it, it, that's the, the far and away i mean like i know keely going wait like him and i were both we're he's a little older than me but like same 
like that same career yeah, trajectory yeah. different ended up in different spots <laughs> but, but started in started in similar right. spaces of like being wildly underage right covering video games uh mm-hmm. and getting paid to do so and that's how him and mm-hmm. i first encountered each other he had a website called game slice where he was doing yeah. uh games reporting way back when i was we were we were like both teenagers sneaking into to e3 um yeah. and he was just a, he was a really really good writer reporter and still is yes. but just yes yeah. like i mean he sold out i mean i don't know what the you know like that's the long long short of it so people should go back and read so i am i am uh correct i think the first like behind the scenes final hours thing he did was for GameSpot. um i think uh yes it was for GameSpot. that's where it he starts it. it starts at GameSpot. Yeah. spot so a, the, a i think the first one he did was daikatana cool. and that sure that wow. is some of the best games writing wait yes i do remember done. this because yeah because um, duncan cited it a bunch for his idos piece uh that we ran at uh waypoint and i remember reading it uh, like just i he like was linked off it and i was like i'm middle middle editing and i start reading keely's piece and i was like god damn yeah, he's like things John were, Romero things, never showed things up. Things were to crazier work. there. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Oh, the the story about that building that they were all in, and oh, the fact yeah. that they were all in the top floor, the glass, the glass death windows. Yes. <laughs> so they start covering with the black paper. Yeah, uh, because it's just so in like just inhumane to be in that space. Yeah. Oh so everyone's God. hanging out trying to develop, you know, these these basement nerds trying to build this video game, and they are being laser beamed through these massive glass windows as they're like grinding out Daikatana, this wonderful failure of a game. Anyway, it's good. Jeff Keeley, you know, he he can hit the high spot occasionally, but yeah, he is he's he still but drags yeah, it so out every know once in a while. That. But I'm just saying, like, the name Jeff Keeley, I did not know until yeah. I saw the man meme to death. Yeah. And so, look, That's... he'll, to take it all the way back around, mm. he might get mauled by that wolf, the dread oh, wolf. Damn. And then, if, and if then on that to. day, on that day, you're going to have to eat your words because oh. you're going to have to acknowledge that the dread wolf, or sorry, dread wolf, it's not the, was, yeah. <laughs> was a great name. You're like I'm, yeah. I'm on board with the I'm on I'm on board with Dreadwolf now. Take my pre-order. I will, I will put it here. If Jeff Keeley, I'll even go one step back. If Jeff Keeley's on stage with a wolf at any time, I'll pre-order Dreadwolf. And if it happens after release, I will buy Dreadwolf. Okay. That's my promise to. How uh, long does this extend listeners? out? If he just happens to Ten find years. himself, okay. <laughs> Ten years from today. <laughs> Or from release date, not even not from record date, from release date, to be fair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Dig- when Dragon Age Dreadwolf 2 yeah. Rising comes out, <laughs> it's still like carries over. Like he yeah, still has an opportunity yeah. to be like, no, we're this year we're doing the wolf thing. Yeah. I'll go back and buy the first game. When I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, On that note, we should take a break before we get into the games we've been playing. Uh, Stick around. One of the most normal morning routines is a bowl, some milk, some cereal. What changes as you get older is you might want to modify what you're putting into that bowl with the milk. If you suddenly want to cut back on sugar, you want to add more protein, you're thinking about fitness goals, but you don't want to give up the deliciousness of what you're putting in that bowl, you might want to think about Magic Spoon. Uh, Because with Magic Spoon, you get all those flavors you love, high protein, 
less sugar. And as someone with kids, the idea that I can show them that these cereals can have all of these things and you can think about what's in your body every morning seems really good. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack of four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs. Only 140 calories a serving, it's high protein. Has zero grams of sugar, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And look, you put peanut butter in anything, I'm there, which is why that's my favorite one and I'm hiding it from my children. You can go to magicspoon.com slash remap to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code remap at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash remap and use the code REMAP to save $5 off. Thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. Hey, REMAP Radio listeners. Rob here. You know, the time was I'd come up with a meal plan for the entire week, and then I'd trawl through the grocery stores making sure I had everything I needed right on budget to make those home-cooked meals. Unfortunately, times have changed, and speaking of time, I don't have quite as much of it as I used to. You know, there's a podcast empire to be overseen. But I can't just order fast food and pizza delivery every night. My budget, and unfortunately my increasingly delicate stomach won't allow it. Fortunately for folks in the same boat as me, there's Factor. Factor gives you 35 options each week to make meal planning easy. And not just for dinner. They have breakfast foods and snacks covered as well. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. But it's just as convenient delivering the food you need right to your door. And now, if you head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off, that's that's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And now you can head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off. That's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And we're back. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very special, it's a very special week for me here at at Remap. Uh, I'm pleased to report that we thought it ended in 2022, but no, 2023 it continues. The year of motorsport. Uh, perhaps it is just the age of motorsport is what we are in because we have a new Forza Motorsport. Shouldn't there be a number attached to that? No, because as we just alluded to. We don't want to do numbers anymore. Don't want to acknowledge how many of these have come before. It's a it's a new day. It's a Forza Motorsport for this, our new age of motorsport. What is what... the last one? Is it seven? Yeah. So they could have they they passed on an opportunity to one up Gran Turismo, mm-hmm. like because yeah. Gran Turismo was seven, right? And then they could have been yeah. eight. Ugh. Yeah. It, it could have been Fatesa. You know, you put the eight in the thing. It's mate. Mate. Yeah, or put the O or put the eight on its side like an infinity symbol. Forza, 
You know, I I love all of this. These are these are all yeah. great ideas. After I had Wolf and Dread shot down, I'm really trying to, to kind of claw my way back. Here. <laughs> Much like a wolf. Yeah, Cam exactly. doesn't want to run a podcast empire anymore, and really doesn't want to be in academia. Uh, yeah. Video game marketing department. That's right. That's that's where that's where the real money is. I missed my calling for sure. Yeah, guys, wolf in a car. It runs over Jeff. Then it eats him. Unforgettable moment. Anyway, yeah. uh, so I've been playing uh, Forza, Forza, Motor, Forza Motorsport, and uh, I've had a bit of a journey with it. I think um, the thing this game was up against for me is that i loved gran turismo 7 like i that game was exquisite uh absolutely loved the the handling model in that game it was just a loved its weird goofy little touches with the gran turismo cafe where you go <laughs> with little talking heads tell you little stories about the cars like it's it's like little uh jet like easy listening and piano jazz bar soundtrack love every single aesthetic decision around gran turismo Forza doesn't have that charm, and I, if I if I have a knock against the game, it is that it doesn't. It's really lacking in in charm and in character in ways that are kind of hard to put my finger on. But I think it's it runs into a bit of a thing that I felt with uh, Motorsport Seven, which is that they have so many cars. It's such a huge car library. That in some ways it's not very individuated and just the way they arrange the campaign, there's not much space to do like the car magazine type thing that a big showcase game like this uh, tends to do well. And even that Forza Horizon, like in its goofy way, also kind of does. Now, that's more like it's less about the cars than it is. Wouldn't it be cool to take some sort of sports car off a cliff in the most scenic land landscape you've ever seen? The answer is like, yes, please. But still, like it, it, there are also more like staged moments in Horizon campaigns to sort of appreciate the beauty of the world, the beauty of the cars, and Forza Motorsport Seven, uh, Eight. Well, it's just Forza Motorsport. But it's the eighth of these uh, here. <laughs> Please, no, we should Forza. We, should. we already, we already yeah. established. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really do that stuff. It, it sort of alludes to it, like when you pick out a new series to enter you'll get the narrator who basically describes like the market segment of cars that you're driving. Like uh, these, uh, like these built for performance cars are the perfect expression of like approachable performance that the greatest manufacturing, you get cuts of like the badges and like beautiful, like gleaming engines and such, but nothing specific, right? There's never a moment where it's going to say like, Hey, let's talk about what Nissan was doing from like 1982 to like 1993. Like, what a golden age for Nissan, am I right? And Gran Turismo does that, right? Gran Turismo is like, you know, I'm eager to talk about the the 90s legacy of the Honda uh, Type R's. And it's like, sure, hell yeah, let's let's do that. And Forza doesn't seem to have time to to do a lot of that stuff. Um, and so it is it is lacking in a bit of that kind of character. I also think it doesn't benefit from the fact that um like Gran Turismo 7 was such a good showcase of the haptic feedback on the uh you know current current DualShock that that game communicates like weight transfer and like uh you know track surface incredibly well through a controller and for driving games, at least for that for that specific driving game, it it has surpassed like the 
Xbox controller in terms of being a a good a, a good controller for for racing games. Sounds like it was the only game that really used that meaningfully except since, thing. except for the the Astrobot, uh, like right. one, which again is not just, that Astrobot thing is like one of my favorite things on the PlayStation Five to this day. But part of that is because I think I wrote that in a review of the Astro's Playroom. It was like I have a deep suspicion that this will end up being the best use case of this like hardware and that was largely true up and until uh gran turismo which a racing game makes sense that if you truly sat and took advantage of nuanced rumble and we're like we also forget like the switch actually has that in the joy cons has like Mm -hmm. they were showing that off in the early switch stuff where you could like tilt a joy con and it would feel like you were moving a marble and it was really inventive switch has that in it yeah, uh, there's like a mini game for listening. You have to hold it up to your head and you can hear the marble rolling around. And you have to like move it outside yeah. of the maze. Yeah. And nobody used it because like, everyone was just strapping those Joy-Cons to the switch. It was like, wow, well, I guess we can't use a feature that would make the hardware not make sense. But it's it's interesting to that that made such an impact on you and lasted up until playing Forza. And I wonder, is that is 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 does that stand out? because the other things also kind of stand like it all works in in concert or was the haptic feedback just that incredible that you just wish the controller had it here like the lack of character like whatever other issues might have with the game uh it's mostly i just wish the uh xbox controller could do something similar because ultimately it's that ability to transmit both a sense of like weight and also like texture through the through the trigger that makes the uh Gran Turismo experience so so memorable and the Xbox controller like it's it's a it's a great controller it's really comfortable it's uh you know it can be very precise it just doesn't have quite like by comparison now it lacks that like magic factor that uh Gran Turismo 7 had and so like I initially had a very lukewarm reaction to uh, to the game, and that, that was in part because the very first build they got us before some updates hit was pretty spotty from a performance standpoint. Um, lots of weird crashes and errors. Um, you know, things would begin to play, but the lighting wouldn't come on, uh, and so you would see like one of those pre-render, like pre-event things, and none of the lighting was triggering. Uh, so it was just like flat grayscale cars in this, on this darkened stage. Uh, kind of eerily beautiful now I think about it. But the so like my first impressions were not super solid. It was mostly sitting there being like, I think I'd rather be playing uh, Gran Turismo. And the thing that I think where Forza makes up a lot of ground and uh, has brought me around a bit on it is that for racing, like the actual like races you play in the campaign, it is so much better at setting up compelling races and a good race event structure uh, that that is a place where it just, uh, you know, it, it, it beats Gran Turismo with a stick, right? Like this is Gran Turismo's races. This is a knock against it that a lot of people had. Every racing event, it's like we're going to start you at the back of the pack. And can you like drive through the field and, and win the race um, every single time? So. Gran Turismo, you 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 had to be so much faster than everyone in the race that you were up against that you could drive from the very back, overtake the leader, and win the race. And if you wouldn't, if you couldn't do that, you couldn't like gold medal the event. The other thing is that called attention to how like kind of robotic a lot of the Gran Turismo drivers were, you know, sort of racing single file around the track. 
you wouldn't see them do that much racing against each other and they weren't that interesting to race against yourself so it was really like um you know competitive time trials with uh, with other other cars on the track forza does some things here that seem much much better um there's some really there's some really novel approaches here one they're campaign games so you you go into an event that has a certain class of car typical forza stuff um but now before you go race the event you show up and there's a practice session and usually it's like your more serious sim games uh like the f1 series they make you do practices in the in the campaign but a lot of games sort of make it optional you can dispense with it and you don't have to do practice stuff and, and learn the track here forza does you do like a few laps on a, a, a practice session uh they give you some challenges they mark out some special sections of the track that you really should perfect if you're going to get the the best time and <clears throat> so you have a bit of what that accomplishes is that because you're changing cars so often in this game, those practice sessions give you a chance to like, okay, I do, I actually do have to relearn this track for this car because the characteristics are meaningfully different. So this gives me three laps. It's not too burdensome to just come to grips with like, what am I in? How is it behaving differently at this corner than something else I've been driving? But the other thing is once it has your practice time information, it knows what your best lap was. Uh, you, you go to the race and this is new. I'm not sure I've seen anyone else do this. You have a choice of where you start the race. You can, you can't start it at first or second, but you can start it up to third. And what you get is more points, more credits. If the further back you start. Uh, so if you just like, you're kind of like, I just want to like gold medals event and win, win the event and move on. Uh, you can start toward the front. Uh, don't, don't push yourself that hard. But if you're like, eh, I think I've, I think I've really got this track. Like I think I'm so good on it. The hell of it. Like start me in 16th, 17th, and I think I can still win this. Um, you can you can do that and, and get more points. The points don't feel so meaningful yet that that is. Um, I'm not sure the economy of that is interesting, but it makes for a more interesting race. And part of that is because I do feel like the AI drivers are interesting. Um, and by that, I mean, like they're unpredictable and sometimes shitty in ways that feel very human. You will be driving in the pack and this is the real danger of like starting toward the back of the race. You'll see the AI drivers just go bonkers trying to overtake each other early on in the race. You will see them like do really dodgy stuff that in general, um, a lot of racing games discourage AI drivers from doing because it's kind of annoying to deal with like seeing someone just be like i'm gonna dive bomb this corner and like <laughs> smash into you but some drivers will do that um i swear to god somebody brake checked me uh the other day coming out of a corner I was, I was i was coming up fast behind him and suddenly even though he was straightened out open road ahead of him i saw the brake lights light up and he went hard on the brakes and i had to like really slam on mine and then he pulled away and it was like, that is the most dog shit behavior. <laughs> and I've been on, I've been on like multiplayer races where people do that shit. Well, um, cause it's not, it sounds like these games have a balance between like, ah, the majesty, the majesty of racing. And like these, these race cars should be raced by race car drivers who would drive the way you expect them to. But like the reality of playing a racing game with a bunch of degenerate humans is that they're going to do whatever they need to do 
to get to like, yeah. to placing. And so I think it seems like the game is kind of trying to straddle those two, which like, I mean, the series always has, right? This is the series that had the driver AI or like, what remember like you could like your racers the could drive avatar drive avatars. Like that comes out of Forza, right? Yeah. And is that still yeah, he- here or? Um, I think it might still be. It's just like, because it's in pre-release, it's not yet populating yeah. with like your friends list. And, okay. you know, I'm not sure how many of your friends are actually in the, play this game so the whole promise of like it's gonna record your buddies racing and then figure out what they it's gonna sort of figure out what their driving profile is i don't know how real that stuff is but i i want to i will emphasize like it's usually what i'm seeing is not like the most toxic multiplayer stuff uh that i see but it is stuff most of what i see is like cars making really recognizable human mistakes right somebody thinking they've got a corner under control and starting to give it too much gas and it just like suddenly understeers badly and they are like veering off the track and you've got to uh you've really got to like do emergency evasive action to avoid collecting that person and that makes for a really that's kind of the most like heart in your mouth type moments in a racing game is where like you see three people battling it out in front of you and somebody makes contact and like it's smashed in front of you and they turn sideways and you got like the blink of an eye to like figure out, can I make it around them to the left, even though they're heading in that direction? Or do I need to steer toward them and assume the car is going to like slide out of the way? Uh, so the game has like lots of interesting driver behavior. And as you get closer to the front, you start seeing better, higher standards of driving uh, and you start getting into more challenging, uh, like proper, proper duels. Um, the other thing that I would I would probably call out here is that if Gran Turismo's um, like the thing that it exaggerates in the way cars feel is weight transfer and like loading um, on like on different parts of the suspension. The thing that Forza seems to really communicate well is track surface and texture. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. There is a. I think this is a this is a old staple of the Forza series, the the Maple Valley uh, Raceway, which is just like this per- perennial autumnal. Like it is, what if somebody, what if somebody put the sickest racetrack in the middle of like a brochure for the Hudson River Valley? Uh, it is, it is basically, it is basically that you were just you were just flooring it through like just dazzling foliage every every time, uh, but. The thing with this time around is that, like, maybe that racetrack's getting a little long in the tooth. Maybe they've had to patch it in a few places or a bunch of places. And there was this corner that didn't look like anything on the track. You cross this bridge, and then you have a pretty unremarkable, like, left turn. You have to slow down, but it looks like the sort of thing where you, you know, pump the brake, drop a gear. In terms of the angle and velocity, the corner should not be hard to make. I kept losing control of the car completely going to that corner. And it took me like a couple tries before I realized that if I looked closely at the tarmac in front of me, there was a new asphalt patch at the entry to the corner. And once I like noticed that, I suddenly realized I could feel it through the rumble, uh, but also just through the, 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 just the general feedback of the car where like you have tons of traction, you're on the gas, you can feel like full contact with the road, everything is working right. Right at your break point, there's that asphalt patch and it is like an ice patch. And so the track surface changes radically and asymmetrically. Like you might have two wheels on that patch and two on the old tarmac that has more grip. 
And this is why I was consistently losing it is because just this one place, it's like it's basically they put like a, a, a asphalt banana peel on the track. And once you realize that's there, that completely changes how you approach the corner, because now you have to think about, especially when you're racing someone else. Do you take the inside line, which is slower, but you avoid the bad patch? Or do you just like break way more gently on that patch and maintain the line and then really gently feed it through the corner? And then once you notice that, you start realizing those little patches are all over uh, the racetrack. And the track is really like twisty. Uh, There's lots of elevation changes. So you'll have things where it's like the car will be leaning like off toward like what is the downhill side of a corner. Uh, the, the corner, the corner is turning right. It's coming down a hill, uh, and off to the left would be the downhill side. And so as you turn right, the load for the car is pushing it out. But since the, the, the track is also sort of leaning, the car just kind of wants to almost like roll down the hill. Um, like if it, if it could, if it were like an SUV, it might flip. And so you add, you, you have that plus you add in. Oh, yeah. And the tarmac surface is going to change like three or four times uh, over the course of this corner. Now you've got a really tricky like patch of patch of raceway that you have to negotiate. And that's like a level of of nuance that, you know, I'm not used to seeing in console racing games because uh, that's real. Like when you're talking about we created really specific sections of track surface that have this particular vibe. That's, that's unusual. Um, and I think it, it pro- my guess is it also showcases the fact that, uh, Microsoft and, and turn, turn 10, um, emphasized during pre-release that they had added to their physics model with a ton more, um, like simulation points on their, <clears throat> on the on the on the contact patch for where the tire meets the road. So it feels like a lot of these tracks have maybe, you know, been edited to emphasize the fact that like there's a much more robust tire simulation happening in this game. And that is a since since so much of racecraft is tire management and tire performance, like this is this is a real like understanding the assignment and executing it type move. Uh, that they that they made here so that combination of things where it's like that really interesting like tire simulation and track surface simulation plus the various starting scenarios you can give yourself and the way the other drivers behave i don't know that it says like you know i think in my original review of of gran turismo it's like a it's a very meditative game it's very peaceful Mm -hmm. it's very relaxing like i'm i'm communing with the soul of you know of cars Mm-hmm. This Lightning is a really McQueen, that yeah. truck, the rest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, right. I'm, I'm summoning. I'm summoning their spirits. Um, but yeah, but in, in this, it's like it's not as interested in like uh, this manufacturer in this era has this character. It's this ineffable quality of this car. Game doesn't really care about it in that way. But what it does is, it's like we're going to set you up with like just absolutely awesome races time and again. And you're going to get in there and you're going to have the option to like fine tune your way through difficulty settings and and such in having really good, convincing, memorable race in the campaign. And that's something that like, you know, Gran Turismo didn't quite get right. Like it was, it was kind of the the car simulations, the sheer pleasure of driving that carried you through that. But here I do find myself 
you know, like thinking about these races and like, oh, that was a really good moment. That was a really good, like, that was a really good overtake. Oh, man, that was that was wild when those guys were uh, driving like complete assholes in front of me. And that stuff doesn't happen very often uh, in, in these sorts of games. So also, are you going to you know, beat Gran Turismo at that? You know what I mean? Like, I feel right. That has been, you know, I'm not a Carson person, but like, I, you know, I obviously played a lot of the early Gran Turismo games on, on the PS1 and PS2. But like, that has always been like this fetishization of the car as object and that's just what that series is so it almost seems like i was actually sort of shocked looking back at the history of the of forza motorsport i was like oh well there must have been one a couple of years ago it's like like forza motorsport 7 was 2017 it's actually been a long like forza horizon has come out like you know twice in between that last major one and it, it makes me wonder if like in those in between periods when you have to make a big bet on what is what is the identity of this game? And then for a long time, it was like, oh, it's Xbox is Gran Turismo. And to some degree, it is still that. It is a this like hyper-competent, photorealistic racing sim. But it does sound like what you're describing is maybe this series trying to claw out a little bit of like, what is it that we do in that space that is ours? Um, I wonder how much of that is Horizon rubbing off on it, which is like, you got a fun brother off to the side, like being a little goofy and you start incorporating a little bit of that into the racing side, or it's just, look, we've been doing this since 2005. Like we have to step out of this game shadow and start finding things that are intrinsically Forza. And I don't, I, I can't, I, you, I guess you're a better judge of, does it feel like it is in that where it's like, Hey, this is intrinsically something we want to be part of the identity. What is unique about Forza? Or it's just like grand Turismo missed the mark on like, like uh objective design in the races and forza just did it better this time that's a really good question um i think i should give credit where it's due like i I do think you can say that gran turismo probably did miss the mark a little bit in its race design now i think gran turismo wants you to get on the multiplayer side as quickly as possible like they want you to do the campaign and then everything is oriented towards i mean this this is the real passion of um you know the the studio head right which is like get people like get you thinking like a real racer and so like pride of place in that interface is like once you've done the campaign why don't you go do the multiplayer events this is like we've built a really good matchmaking system and rules enforcement like go do it it can get really serious really fast it's really cool but I think Schwartz is making a bet that most people do play these things kind of solo and you want that solitaire experience to be to be good. Um, and this is this is one of the better ones. Uh, like, I like, you know, it, it should be credit where it is due, where I think in some of the presentation it does, it does give ground to to Gran Turismo. Uh, I do. I do think. I think it, to me, it feels like in the past they tried a little bit more to nail the presentation stuff. Um, but I think that tended to work out with like having celebrity voiceovers for some events. Uh, they always would have sort of weird ties to top gear. Um, you know, which is a good, how like acknowledging that top gear, especially with, Mm -hmm. uh, Jeremy Clarkson and, and such, uh, you know, that is a show that was hugely influential and hugely popular and at its best is, is, is some of the, the best like car documentary and re- criticism and reportage that, that I've seen. Uh, but it was ultimately undone by the fact that 
it had the sensibilities of Clarkson's uh, boomer Tory shithead uh, persona. And he couldn't he could not stop himself from being like in a very like almost Trumpian way where it's like they don't want me to use the old timey slur. <laughs> but I'm going to use it, folks. That, that was kind of like this was kind of how like Clarkson would would constantly like, breach that line on the show. He still got the uh, Amazon show, right? Like that's still going for a little bit longer. Yeah. Am I think remembering um, that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. And they went all in on him. Like Clarkson's farm became a thing where it's mm-hmm. like him running a gentleman's farm. Um, I mean, you know, he seems like a very uh, toxic person in a lot of ways. Also very good at making compelling television. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two things like, you know, are, are not mutually exclusive, unfortunately. Uh, in the end, it just becomes increasingly hard to watch him because like once he realized that he was like pushing boundaries, it was like, ah, now, well, you, what do you mean you can't, I can't say that. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it more now <laughs> and louder. And so it just becomes like, uh, like excruciating to, to watch him. But the, where I was going with that is if you're bringing in like the, the top gear connection, um, their whole deal was like almost a Gran Turismo type relationship with the car and what does like the construction of a car say about like what the engineers were assuming about like how cars should be used, who's going to be using it, how should it drive. And so the, like there was that tie in Forza uh, to that style like you know, car magazine type presentation, but they never quite, they never did quite, quite get there. They never quite invested the, the space for it. And I think part of it is just literally the space has never existed for it in their interface, in their experience of like navigating the campaign. It's, it's always been about like, get to the car menu as quickly as possible. Like pick, pick your ride, get out there on the track. Uh, And I think that does mean that the cars feel a little bit, a little bit less special like there's a there's a little bit less interest in the cars as anything other than like uh visual objects that you that you drive um so i think that's that's a bit of a miss but ultimately you're gonna spend most of your time racing in a game like this and the racing is uh very very good now i haven't had a chance to play multiplayer i haven't seen uh i've not made it far enough in the campaign where i'm starting to drive things that are like basically race cars which which can be kind of a a tricky thing because it can be hard for the same simulation engine to really nail the feeling of like a you know 350 horsepower like uh you know street racer and then also be like and here's a 750 horsepower like endurance car uh that's just like all speed massive race wheels those two things can feel so different that the same simulation can sometimes just not quite feel as good for both types of car. Um, I don't know if they've, uh, you know, I don't know how the car is going to, I don't know how the game is going to handle uh, those later stages. But yeah, it is a game that I turned around pretty fast into like really digging the experience of, of racing with it. I think just broadly, I, I do kind of wonder where does a game like this fit now? It feels like, it feels like the Horizon games are so popular and I think for a number of years, it felt like, well, Gran Turismo was basically not taking the field. You know, it skipped an entire generation. Um, Which and- is wild. It's, it, it is actually, leg- I mean, legitimately <laughs> sort of nuts that it just did not have a PlayStation 4 game. 
it had the multiplayer. Uh, Gran Turismo yeah. Sport yeah. was effectively Gran Turismo Seven, but just multiplayer, and that's as far as they went. Uh, yeah, it is. It's very fun. They were just like, no, we're not. We are not going. We're we're not going out there. Uh, you know, with a with a full Gran Turismo game this generation. And Forza came on very hard and very fast. And for a while, I think it it did feel like that had kind of overtaken Gran Turismo. But in retrospect, I kind of wonder how much of that was the fact that the PS3 got beat so badly in so many markets by the 360 and was Forza's strength as real as it appeared to be. Uh, Because now, you know, it feels like the shoe's on the other foot. It's a less successful console. Um, Yeah, I think most people you know, do have PlayStation at this point. If you have that, you probably have a racing game you are quite happy with. Um, and if you're not, you're probably looking at like harder core PC simulation racing games. So I am curious where a game like this lands, both in terms of, uh, you know, audience, but also internally at Microsoft, like, you know, with, with things like horizon proving to be so popular and so, perfectly adapted to like seasonal models and such. Uh, is there going to be as much appetite for the prestigier, but less approachable uh, hardcore racing sim? Especially I as you're hitting really diminishing returns on, ah, you will, you invest in the racing game because it's the best in class way to show off your hardware, right? Like, yes, Grand Turismo looked great. This game seems to look great, but it is not the same level of like, Oh, like, I don't care about racing games, but I'm going to look at this racing game and go, my God, I can't believe a video game console is doing this. That's just less true uh, these days. And so I, I think from multiple fronts, I think you're right that it will be very interesting to see what Microsoft does with a Forza Motorsport game after this. Do you think the character problem, the personality issue, could be addressed by getting your boy Doug on YouTube into this game? Yes. I actually, it's half seriously. Do you think if the, if like Forza somehow embraced like YouTube car culture in like a serious fashion, it could like fashion kind of like find its own identity? Like, cause Gran Turismo is way too buttoned up, right? But like, there's this whole new generation of car enthusiasts that exists in a whole, totally, I'm sort of like, you know, <laughs> spitballing out of my ass here, but like, is there something to that? I think it'd be, it's an interesting road not taken. I do feel like car culture has moved extensively onto YouTube. Um, that's not to say there's not still like car and driver is still a fun magazine to read. Uh, and, but they also do fun YouTube shows, right? Like just round table talk shows about like, let's name some cars. <laughs> and I'm like, hell yeah, name those cars. Let's go and bring a trailer and like, just figure out what we think of these things. Uh, I, I think some of that is like having, uh, I think it, here's, here's the problem with that though. Mm-hmm. I think the manufacturers tend to be so protective and so yeah. serious about this yeah. stuff yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that I don't think they, I think one of the reasons the YouTube car culture is so compelling is that cars are also ridiculous, right? And some of them suck. And some of them, like, you know, the whole thing about uh, Doug DeMuro's, like, quirks and features approach to reviewing cars is that some manufacturers consistently make bizarre choices about, like, this would be a cool thing to have in your car interior. And it's not. It's just not. It's a horrible decision. And yet, year after year, they keep trotting out models where it's like, no, no, no. This year, people are this. This is the year of the pleather dashboard. 
and it isn't but like just conviction that like one day the 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 tide will turn just weirder stuff like that so i think there there could be there could be space for for stuff like that um i i think having a bit more of a, a human touch overall could be could be helpful but maybe that stuff's just incredibly tricky to implement um in the meantime the racing's Racing's real solid, so I'll I'll report back more as I get deeper into the game, uh, and once I start playing multiplayer. Also, uh, my Xbox Store code worked for pre-release on the Xbox, didn't work for pre-release on the PC. Uh, so that's the that to me is the other weird thing about this. This thing feels like it pushes the limits of the Series X in a way that. Gran Turismo 7 didn't feel like it was pushing the limits of the PS5. Like it felt comfortable marriage there of like ambition and hardware. You hear maybe it's an optimization thing, but I do consistently feel like, I don't know. I feel like we're right at the outer edge of like what the Series X can can really handle right now. And so I am kind of curious, like once that PC code unlocks, um, if it's going to be the weird case where like the signature Xbox racing game it's just going to be a killer on the PC. And the advice I'm giving like in a week or two is like, don't get it for the Xbox. Well, I mean, obviously the transfer, so you don't have to choose. This is the appeal of like the, the Microsoft model right now, but it'd be very funny if sort of the punchline for a lot of this stuff is, yeah, until we roll out a new Xbox, uh, your windows gaming experience is the way to appreciate this offering. So, uh we'll we'll see how that how that all unfolds uh patrick you got a couple you got a couple games this week uh i wanted to start off with cocoon yeah uh cocoon Mm -hmm. uh is a tremendous new uh uh, puzzle game you play like a little bug on a weird alien planet you don't get much of a setup you're just you're here so there's nothing to do with the movie Mm. <laughs> no, no, no. So does does Ron Howard narrate it, or I think it's exactly DLC. It's part of the Howard season pass. Um, I should have researched this. I, I didn't, no, I didn't, I didn't get now. that. Um, but uh, yeah. Cocoon, that's a movie we should watch someday. Um, come on, finish up those, finish up those strike contracts. Um, Just so surrender, does Will, damn does you. Does Wilford Brimley do the VO for the Cocoon, or I, I is he doing direct to camera stuff? I'm really confused. <laughs> You know, none of those things are present, sadly, but uh, fortunately, mm. what is present is probably one of my favorite games of the year. Uh, he plays a little mm. bug, you push little orbs, um, like some of the uh, uh, gimmick of the game is that these orbs represent worlds, and you're <sighs> carrying the orbs around and then can enter and leave those worlds. So, like, there'll be like a little claw that you put this orb into, and it's the green orb. And you go into there and like, oh, that's the water world. It's like, oh, I need something in that water world so I can go in, put it in the claw, go into the water world, grab that, come out of the water world. Like, uh, oh, wait, I need something in the orange world. Okay, grab the orange orb. And you are then kind of passing things between them. I think this, I'm going to, oh, your files are too powerful. I'm not playing for Discord Nitro. You son of a bitch. I just canceled that. Uh, I'm gonna pay. You for gotta this. pay for Nitro. Ah, uh, just charge. I do it. have to disclose that I'm sponsored by Discord Nitro. Oh. <laughs> How do I get that? How do no, I get sponsored I'm by Discord I'm Nitro? So I'm I can uh, not. share this. I'm gonna end up uh, paying. Try one month free. Thank you. Okay, fine. I will try. The- I'm hitting next. Get Nitro yearly card ending. The Nitro activated. Thank you. 
Um, all right. So, it's that easy. It's, it's that, that easy. easy, folks, to get Discord Nitro. <laughs> so One got, click away from Discord Nitro. <laughs> got, uh, this this file will show up here a second in our chat. But, um, yeah, you know, you have an instance where, like, there are puzzles that are happening. Like, you have to manipulate parts in different worlds to then have an action appear in the other one. It's really elegant. Hmm. It's beautiful. It's haunting. It has this incredible synthesizer soundtrack. It just feels very, the world's very off-putting, but not in a grotesque and unsettling, like, Geiger way. Like, I know I talked to the developers at, at Summer Games Fest, and they were deeply inspired by a lot of Geiger's work, but it's uh, less of the outright <laughs> fucking um, present in, in, in Geiger's work. But, more, more of a subtle kind of. Yeah, more of a, yeah, a subtle, uh, like, it's, it's not mm-hmm. sexualized, but it does feel very um, otherworldly. Like, so, like, here in this, this clip that I just shared with, with both of you, you have an instance in which um, you're you're trying to get uh, this little guy through, and mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I've got this little, this, this little yellow guy, but he's going to get captured by this little beam that comes across, and it's like, well, how do I, how do I do that? It's like, all right, well, I'm going to go into the other world. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd already solved it here. Well, this is a bad clip. Well, Patrick <laughs> fucked that up. You know, just really elegant uh, demonstration of the cool part of. of yeah, you can. I, I'm watching you carry this orb. Like, don't be down on yourself, Patrick. You're carrying the orb well, it's not from the clip left I to right to show. Basically, what happens is you end up going back to this hub area, and you can only peer in to the other world. You see, like, a, kind of a distorted mm-hmm. view of it. And you're using that distorted view in order to, like, realize that, that those lasers have passed and then it's safe to come through. It's just a really smart game. The um, uh, Viewfinder was a puzzle game that came out earlier this year that I was a huge fan of. And the way I described my relationship with Viewfinder is how I describe my relationship with puzzle games more broadly, which is I really like them until I don't. Um, I have trouble with games that want to make you feel smart by, like, putting, like, an ultra challenge in front of you. Like, hey, like. We want you to feel like an idiot for the next like 40 minutes. But when you get through it, you're going to feel like a genius. And what Viewfinder did, what Cocoon does, is I constantly have these aha and I feel so smart moments. But I'm never running into the kinds of challenges that have me like just like I feel like I need to look up a walkthrough. Like I feel like I've hit the limits of what my brain can pull off within this world. Part of the way that they do this is similar to Viewfinder in that they just limit what you can do. Like the puzzle that's in front of you is the puzzle that's in front of you. But, like there's not a whole lot of other places you can go. They are they are constantly gating off areas of the world in smart ways so that you're like, well, maybe something's like five minutes back. Like, no, you can't go five minutes back. Like everything is within 30 seconds. And so the tools are here. You just need to figure out the order in which um, um, they go in. Um, there was uh, this, uh, someone on Twitter uh, Snowman Gaming uh, described it uh, really well. I kind of summed up my thoughts, which was the reigning champ of puzzle games in my mind was Baba is You, but I think Cocoon just passed it because I never played one that doesn't have to do insanely difficult challenges to make you feel smart. It's simple, and yet my mind kept being shattered all the time. And and then actually, this was in response to uh, one of the, the like the main designer in the game who like wrote in response to this idea was when I stopped asking myself, "quote Is this puzzle challenging enough?" And instead asked, quote, is this puzzle stimulating enough? Cocoon became a much better game. Some puzzles are legit mind benders, but others simply serve to connect you to the world. And that's like a really elegant way of describing why it is so pleasurable to play this game. The puzzles are so elegant and intricate 
and they're not simple, or they're not like there's complicated and there's convoluted. And often, I feel puzzle games are convoluted. Um, in like they think they're elegant, but they're mostly just convoluted. And complicated can be be something entirely different. And and here I think Cocoon hits this really beautiful midpoint where it rubs up right against what the game can uh, be asking of you and asks you to go uh, a couple steps further, but without dipping into territory that feels as though it's it's asking the player to engage in, you know, like, what's the thing? Like, oh, you're having trouble with this puzzle. Like, walk away and come back. You know what I do? I walk away, and then I don't come back, is, like, usually how it works for me in puzzle games. And everyone's, you know, everyone's brains are different, how you're your relational puzzle games are going to be different too, but that's usually what happens to me. It's like, well, if I walk, if I don't look up the solution, I will just walk away and then not come back. So I always appreciate a game that able is able to walk that fine line. And I, I do not think Cocoon is a simple game by any means. I think it is just like a deeply polished, uh, well-made, very smart uh, puzzle game that also has just some of the coolest atmosphere and aesthetics uh, that I've seen uh, this year. So yeah, it's it's on Game Pass. It's also on Steam. Um, but, uh, highly, highly recommended. Just like a really, really wonderful time where I've, I played half of it and was like, uh, I could just steamroll the other half of this game, but I, I'm going to go play, well, I went and played AC Mirage, uh, instead <laughs> because in, in many ways I wanted to save the second half of, of Cocoon because that's how much I'm enjoying it. It does look, it does look really special and really, really gorgeous. Uh, the other thing I'm curious about, just because it was, we didn't get to it last week. And the title alone makes me really want to hear about this. Gunbrella. Yeah, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It comes from uh, the developer Doinksoft, who did uh, Gato Roboto, which is one of my favorite kind of, uh, it's like a pretty straightforward, short Metroid-style game. Really, really well done. Uh, what I would tell you is, Unfortunately, I think you should go back and play Gato Roboto. Um, Gunbrella did not uh, did not end up doing for me. It's a kind of uh, action noir game where you have a uh, it's a Gunbrella. It's a gun. It's an umbrella that shoots bullets and also kind of acts as a grappling hook. Also acts as a um, so platform. finally the penguin gets his star yeah pretty much the, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 yes yes there's there's definitely there's definitely uh, 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 shades of that here uh the first like hour or two that i played when i talked about the game previously seemed very promising and fun and i don't think it's a bad game by any means it is stylish as hell it is gorgeous to look at and has some incredible uh art um it has an an amazing jazz soundtrack that is kind of unlike anything i've heard in a in a game recently but i don't think the gameplay really comes together i i don't think the platforming is particularly interesting i don't think the combat asks very much of you as the player. It's a lot of really cool ideas on paper that never quite get put to the test in the actual design and combat sequences. It was a game that I ended up being kind of thankful that it was pretty short because like, well, if this goes on too much longer. I don't know that the art and music and, and actually like pretty clever writing. Like it's, it's very like the, the writing is very stylized and, and interesting to read. It just doesn't add up to very much. Um, and that was like pretty disappointing for how how much promise there was in its individual elements but i think it's like a really interesting example of a game where it can make a really incredible first impression we're like oh my god like i've i've got grenades and and, and all these different types of bullets and i can parry with the uh the umbrella and i can shoot myself into the air with the umbrella and i can drift in different directions with the, but like 
I cannot wait to see what the game does with this and its combat and level design. And mm-hmm. the answer is like, it doesn't do very, very much. Like it, it sets up a bunch of really cool mechanics and uh, things for the player to do. And then just doesn't really ask them to do anything mm-hmm. with it. So a bummer. Um, again, I think like it's an interesting game, but if you're going to play anything from that studio, I would, I would instead check out Gato Roboto instead of, instead of a Gunbrella. Do you think it would be better if it were like Umbun? Like if we start, if we were Umbrella Forward rather than Gun <laughs> Forward, do you think that would have made the game better? You know, I don't know. It's a, it's a good hypothetical. It was more about though. protecting yourself from the rain and mm-hmm. like occasionally shooting clouds and whatnot. Yeah, I, you know, I wish I had, you know, for, I mean, you jest, but I wish I had more reasons to use the umbrella, frankly. <laughs> like, like yeah. it's called Gunbrella. And mm-hmm. a lot of times I just didn't really have a good reason to use mm-hmm. the said said gunbrella and i would have i would have liked that yeah that's that's the tragedy of the kind of portmanteau game you can just imagine the the inverse the umbun game (laughs) and i'm gonna make it uh copyright do not steal umbun (laughs) noted we'll put that in the show notes that um please thank you yeah (laughs) there's a i'm writing a letter right now and i'm mailing it to myself (laughs) in, uh, in an envelope um like all my greatest ideas so while acknowledging the context for a lot of uh, Ubisoft games right now is a is a horror show, uh, one of the major releases and the reason we've got Cam here this week is to talk about Assassin's Creed Mirage. And uh, Cam, you are something of a scholar of uh, Assassin's Creed, and I think well, I'm curious because I don't think I don't think we've had this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you're 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 writing a book on on the Assassin's Creed series, yeah. Uh, and some of your favorite pieces of crit uh, that I've seen have, have been about this series. But I've never had this conversation with you, which is that this is a series that is evolved, that has evolved quite a bit over the years. It's taking mm-hmm. varying approaches to like what is an Assassin's Creed game, how does progression work, etc. Mm-hmm. These have been divisive topics within its fandom. Uh, there's there's people who have a certain favorite archetype of of what makes a a great Assassin's Creed game, and then there are lesser imitations. And I'm curious, do you have sort of a qualitative um hierarchy of preferences for this or like do do you feel this is a series that has gotten it right at times and gotten mm-hmm. it wrong and there's like broader archetypes of ac games that are there's inherently stronger or do you think it's a little more nuanced than that in terms of how it evolves yeah so so i'm writing this assassin's creed book it's in i guess uh in in the academic universe uh you know you uh you write a book it goes through peer review right so other scholars read it they check it out and then they tell you what you need to fix and so we're in that process right now someone is reading it someone who is anonymous to me is reading or a couple someone's are reading it and uh giving some feedback it's it's an interesting project because it is an academic book that's going through an academic publisher um but it's also aimed for general readership so if you're listening to me talk about this right now hopefully next year you'll be able to buy this book and i say that to say um that thinking about that that kind of question of like well what is what's good about assassin's creed or what makes people interested in it as a big franchise is like a kind of a primary question so uh, for me, what makes an Assassin's Creed game good is if it takes its own bullshit very seriously. Um, one of the real reasons that I like Darby McDevitt so much, who has been involved in writing and directing these games uh, off and on throughout the years, since maybe Revelations, uh, maybe earlier than that, but uh, is that Darby McDevitt is someone who like is really into Assassin's Creed's bullshit, right? Like it's into the meta plot. 
all these these games are really kind of self-referential that McDevitt has had a, a heavy hand in. And I like that part. I like when the science fiction-y, uh, deep past weirdness of Assassin's Creed uh, is in the forefront when you're like actually having to stare that in the face. And so I've been feasting for the past couple games because Valhalla like quadruples down on that. You know, it makes it this this major, major part of the narrative to the extent where if you're not invested in the franchise, you might not really know what's happening. Uh, you know, I've read plenty of accounts of that of the last few hours of that game, just not making much sense to people who that was their first game. Assassin's Creed and also, you know, all of the DLC for Odyssey uh, is this kind of like a weird metaphorical what's going on in the history of the Isu, this kind of like creator race for the humans, all that kind of stuff. So for me, like I, I'm less interested in like the mechanical moment to moment feel, you know, feeling of Assassin's Creed. That's not what makes it good or bad for me for the most part, but rather how that's framed. And part of the reason for that is over the past couple of years, I've spent something like 1500 hours playing Assassin's Creed games, right? Like I, I've just like blown through whatever, uh, like the regular human experiences of, of doing these <laughs> games. And so like I start seeing, you start seeing like similarities and categories, right? Like it's so easy for me to see continuity in these games rather than breaks. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, every conversation I have about this, this project or anytime anyone brings it up, the first question they ask me is what's your favorite? And I say, I don't have a favorite. And then they tell me theirs it is invariably different you know there's not there's maybe like internet people consensus about what's good what's bad rank order whatever yeah. average human beings who are actually playing <clears throat> these games and like never posting about it on the internet or whatever there's a really wide variety into what they find thrilling and exciting about that and that's that's part of what's interesting about writing a book about it too is like you know, it's not just like fighting internet fights about, you know, what is the best assassin animation that happens, right? There's like a broader set of context and interests that people have around it. So, so yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. So my answer is, I don't know. I just like when the weird, uh, precursor alien people show up. So I think relating to that though, it's something I've, I've certainly felt a little bit about, mm -hmm. uh, Mirage pre-release is that, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that this was a back to basics. We've heard you where like it's yeah. not so much positioned as that, but I, I I did pick up that like there was a bit of subtext that these games were getting bigger and bigger and more sprawling just in terms of scope, in yeah. terms of like what is how big is the story you were playing, how much slack is in that story. Mm -hmm. And that Mirage was, if not necessarily going to be some sort of like return to a a uh, golden age of Assassin's Creed mechanically, it was at least going to be a bit more uh, focused and a bit, it was mm. going to attempt to be a bit tighter. And so with, with that in mind, uh, I, I am curious, like how you, how you were finding Mirage and uh, you know, as, as you mm. lead us into this, what, what is it? What is the, what is the setup for the, for the game? Yeah. Well, I've spent the last, as I worked on this project seriously, and I, I would say that I've probably spent the last four years tinkering and taking notes and doing stuff on the project, but you know, I've been writing the book, writing words on the page for maybe two years now. Um, and, uh, so what's been interesting is during that process, I like really started following a lot of the big major fan accounts, you know, on YouTube, on social media, things like that. Just to, like get a sense broadly of like the people who this is their only game, you know, this is the thing they look forward to. What are they all about? And, and the messaging to that community from Ubisoft was overwhelmingly the first thing you said, we are back to basics. We are back to basics. Um, and so I, you know, I don't know if that's in every trailer that kind of went mass, but certainly that's the thing that do that we know what audience, basics means in this case? 
Um, assassinating pe- that was a big question. I was talking to Brian Taylor, uh, also a big Assassin's hey, Creed fan, about this brother. Like, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, mutual friend Brian Taylor, and for a couple months ago, we were like, "What does it mean?" Right? Because they keep showing all these images that are kind of like a standard Assassin's Creed game now, and that well, really does mean Altair has haters. People don't appreciate right. uh, like Assassin's Creed One. They oh, you don't want it that basic, do you? No, oh, you yeah. don't like it when it was when it was just. Well, pure no, they want Assassin's Creed Two. I mean, right. I think it's it's they that's actually like I think that's that is broadly like when I went to a uh, you know like a press demo of this uh, at Summer Games Fest and like that's mm-hmm. they didn't say it in like as specifically this, but it was basically yeah. like like there's a lot of people that fell in love with this series when it was AC two AC brotherhood, like that arc of the series before, but essentially like there's a period of AC pre open world RPG. And then Mm -hmm. where it's really, it's always been popular, but the like, it like the last couple of games have like gone like Odyssey, um, Valhalla have been Mm -hmm. more popular than ever as they've embraced more of the sort of, you know, I say this like slightly like as a pejorative, but like checklist gaming, like it is yeah, big, it is huge, it is it is closest you get to making a live service game as an open world game, which is why like spoilers, like that's where AC is going. Like the end game of AC is this AC Infinity project that they're working on, which is that right. you just turn AC into an actual live service game, whereas uh, like Mirage is. Like, don't like it's it's, you know, making a game that is like more linear focused and the like mm-hmm. the map is just smaller and denser. It's real small. It's real small. It's, it is it's definitely real small. Real small. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and there's a real kind of thing if if notably this game is cheaper, right? It's fifty dollars, I think, across all the yes. things instead of like a 60 or 70 dollar game. And that is notable. They are they are doing everything in their power. And this goes back to the uh, back to basics, big you know quotation marks kind of thing. They are doing everything in their power to signal this is a little project that we're kicking out to you. That's interesting. If you want that kind of classic somewhere between AC one, AC two feel to it, you're going to get what you want. Literally at the opening of the game, you can choose the quote unquote classic filter. Right, which is putting the blue shade filter from Assassin's Creed One over everything. <laughs> um, they, they are aesthetically, you know, signifying that what this is about and what we're doing, and it's also like a fairly linear and basic plot. Right, I, I think the plot is like pretty paint by numbers. I, the, I've played two thirds of it, maybe a little bit more than that at this point. I've done a lot of like kind of uh, tinkering around and playing with systems and stuff like that. And there, nothing has surprised me even remotely and not like in an Assassin's Creed way, but in a narrative beat by beat, like as soon no. as certain characters were introduced, I was like, you're dead. I can, You're I can, ba- I can barely remember the main character's name, Cameron. <laughs> like, awesome. I, yeah. I, 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 this is a Quintus. I actually, I don't know that I'll pl- return to the. I played about five, six hours of the game. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm going to return to it after this podcast is over. Mm-hmm. But I've had a perfectly fine time with the game. But it is a, yeah. it is the kind of game where the moment a cutscene starts, it's like, all right, well, time to see what's going on. On what are people mad about on Twitter right now? Oh, they took away the headlines. Yeah, that sucks. And then well, like because the game returns, it, yeah. and then I'm like, cool, time to get back to the part that I want to do, which is like chain <laughs> assassins, chain assassinations. So that's the thing. I mean, the structure of the game is the, this is why, you know, I said before, it's kind of the things people liked about Assassin's Creed 2, that big kind of explosion moment, because famously the first Assassin's Creed was fairly negatively reviewed. It got very middling reviews across basically every um, reviewing site, and it was basically like, well, you kind of do the same thing over and over in a bunch of different locations, and there's some slight nuance to that, but you're doing roughly similar things things 
perhaps unshockingly, in Mirage, you were doing roughly similar things with characters in Assassin's Creed bureaus, these kind of centralized locations and neighborhoods. Exactly like you said, Patrick, like you're introduced to the bureau master. They are there. You learn a little bit about them. Oh, they're they got a quirk. You know, they're a poet <laughs> or uh, they make inventions, you know, and mm-hmm. you do three or four missions in that area. And I will say that those missions are they're splitting the difference between the classic Assassin's Creed thing, which is like go and eavesdrop, you know, Assassin's Creed one, go eavesdrop, listen to the information, go to the next place. You use that to build a clue to find out that you have a, a char- you have a chart that you're like working chart, through, yeah. like and there, there is a right. it's, it's both a, li- both, uh, a linear game and. But a linear game with choice, right? It's like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. you have like different cases that you're investigating. And yeah. then underneath that are like contracts that you're taking on to like mm-hmm. grind currency in, in the game. Um, yeah. But it's like, you, it's like, oh, I don't really, that, that clue is really far away to continue this like branch right. of the story. But that one's just around the corner. Like I'm going to pick up mm-hmm. that thread and you can, you can kind of start, you can just follow one all the mm-hmm. way to the end and then do mm-hmm. the big assassination, assassination. Like I just did one of those last night. But, but you can kind of pull on the threads like in whatever order you want. It's not like where these yeah. days Assassin's Creed is literally gating by a number next to enemies to make them more mm-hmm. difficult. Like yeah. none of that happens here. And in fact, the game starts with like kind of interestingly, you don't want to be in combat. You're going to get your ass kicked. Like it's yeah. very easy to die in this game to the point where once stealth breaks, you need to either get the fuck out of there or reload a previous save because mm-hmm. In modern, like the last like several Assassin's Creed games, like you break stealth and like twelve enemies are on you. All right, like time to parry attack. Like I've got some yeah, items I can you use. You can equip a shield in yeah, <laughs> most yeah. of the recent games. Right here, yeah. you're done. Like say yeah. goodnight. Like you are not. Like you mm-hmm. can parry and dodge, but you're going to get overwhelmed, and it makes um it makes the encounters feel a little more binary in in that sense. And certainly that is mm-hmm. a throwback. But I think one of the things I characterize the game is. There'd be one way for Ubisoft to do this, which is like, hey, we're rethinking, like, if we look at Assassin's Creed as, like, two different styles of games, like, pre-post, like, pre-post uh, yeah. RPG, like, ification of, of the series. Um, yeah. What does it mean to make one of those older-style Assassin's Creed games in 2023? That's not what this is. This is just, mm-hmm. no, like, we've broadly just taken... Right the mechanics and the stylization and the mission design of a game from 10 plus years ago and dropped it into like B like BB plus mm-hmm. like, you know, technology and aesthetics. Like it still feels very simple in that regard and not necessarily in a, in a, in a bad way. Like it's a very no. pleasing game to play. Um, mm-hmm. It, it, even though it's not ambitious, like I don't really hold it against it. Like, cause kind of as we've talked, like Ubisoft the whole time has been like, this one is not very ambitious, but it's the kind of stuff that you used to like. And I definitely mm-hmm. can see where people are. This is like a game that's, I haven't seen the reviews. Like my guess is this game is reviewing sevens across the board. It's like, ah, it's all right. And for some people they're going to like go nuts for it because it's yeah. exactly the kind of game or uh, this version of Assassin's Creed that they've missed. Well, it feels like a trial balloon for the stuff that, that's rumored about Infinity, right? Live service kind of stuff. It feels like a trial balloon in also the same way that the DLC for Valhalla felt that way, which is like some of the DLC for Valhalla and for Odyssey, That's those are 10-hour experiences, right? And like you can imagine four times a year dropping one of those, uh, you know, along with some content inside of it, you know, think the Destiny model. And you could do that. This This feels like 
you know, if you were launching Infinity, you would launch with a 20-hour campaign with a small map like this, and then your next update is the next region, you know, a, a kind of GLC-sized thing. And it seems to me that Ubisoft is thinking about, well, what is the minimum viable scale that we can do in Assassin's Creed at as a piece of content that w that is legible and full and feels like a full game. I also think that maybe that this, and that I have no proof or support or anything. This is pure speculation on this. That I think that this was initially a Assassin's Creed one remake reboot. Mm. Um, it feels so close to some of that stuff. Yeah. And if you were really trying to put the best beloved parts of that game and then Assassin's Creed two together, you know, to make a kind of like, all the good things you remember that, you know, uh, before the RPG stuff, you would not, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be this biased toward Assassin's Creed one. It would have more of Assassin's Creed two kind of stuff in it, I think. And so, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Goes down easy, hard to be mad at. It is fascinating that they are really and truly jettisoning any of the kind of modern day stuff. Um, it opens with a thing of, William Miles, Desmond Miles' dad, being like, this is a memory that we've had the whole time, but uh, we suppress. <laughs> We're the assassins. Uh, and then you just go into it. And I'm sure that more of that will come out. But, yeah. you know, toward the end of the game or maybe at the very end of the game, that's the Assassin's Creed thing to do. Um, but there's a little bit of the first civilization stuff, you know, some of the Isu things. There's a whole plot and mission around that. Um, but for the most part, it's exactly as you said. You go to a location, you know, you, you develop clues from different uh, submissions you do. You go to locations, you stealth around. It's got some of the, the worst, and I hate to say this, but some of the worst level design I've experienced in Assassin's Creed in a very long time. It makes the free um, running uh, extremely frustrating. The amount of times yes, that I yes. have, I cannot feel like, I think quintessential to Assassin's Creed like starting in two and then got more elegant as they went along was I will be able to hold a and forward and the game's going to kind of figure it out as I like go. I want to go like diagonally. Cool. We're going to mm -hmm. figure that out. The game, the layout is, is set for you to just hold the analog stick in the direction you want to go. The amount of times I have played this game and just like fallen. Like, I feel like there, so there's a, there's a, there's skill trees in this and mm -hmm. there's a skill that I, I just got. Uh, last night because I was tired <laughs> of losing three-fourths of my health where your character right. rolls on the ground to yeah. reduce uh, mm -hmm. the fall damage you take. And yeah, it does a little, like a little Nico Bellic. Yeah, when, when and it really ground. feels like that skill was not, again, no evidence for here. This is me just spitballing. I'm having played the game for a decent chunk. Like, I feel like that was there because they found that players were falling so often because the level design could not accommodate them just smoothly getting around that, we, oh, we need to help these players out somehow instead of losing yeah. most of their health. Because even just refilling your little health items is like a fairly expensive proposition um, mm -hmm. early on in, in the game. And it's just it's just not elegant. And it feels clunky yeah. in a way that is frustrating. It doesn't feel like it's a mechanical flaw. I think it's, I'm with you, it feels yeah. like a, a level design flaw and it makes it because the game's stealth is so binary. Like the times where I've been caught and then have to start, like the checkpointing's bad too. Where like I'll be deep into a mission sequence, yeah, get caught, die, and I'm like, well, I'm sure I'm going to start like two minutes ago. And it's like, no, you're, you're like you're ten minutes back, and you have to start this yeah, all over again. Getting caught because you know they're like th these big fortresses and you know big military establishments or police mm -hmm. stations, whatever. There's and and it's pretty cool because you know it's some real old school kind of 
immersive sim thinking, which is like, yeah, you got you just got to go into a room, figure it out, buddy. Like, you know, which has not been the case necessarily for the past several Assassin's Creed. Sometimes they had very strict uh, ways of doing these missions. It's, so it's pretty open, you know, in a way that Assassin's Creed has not felt this open probably since Unity, I would say, in terms of your approach to missions. When, and you're going to use but, a lot of that, that eagle is back, right? Like, I feel like... Is yeah, that, um, you got another eagle, yeah. Yeah, where you, you know, you're... And you're really using it to mark... Mm-hmm troops and you know mm-hmm. uh, you know like guards around a place and you can use it to find like secret passageways like mm-hmm. there's a lot you spend a lot of time in this game to a surprising degree watching guards move and manipulating ai patterns and then basically like yeah. your mileage is going to vary on how tired are you of, of that as a concept and also knowing in this game it's done well enough but not like the ai is not always going to do what you think it's going to do <laughs> like the yeah. animations aren't always going to do what you think they're going to do and like that can lead to some uh unnecessary friction yeah uh, yeah the only thing i was going to say uh about that too is like as you're talking about when stealth breaks in those big missions it is more advantageous for you to just run away yeah and not like in a fun way of like let's do a circle and get up to the roof and like hide in a haystack somewhere no you should just pick a direction and run straight in (laughs) that direction wait for the ai to reset go back and and then at least like all the enemies you killed will still be dead or whatever right (laughs) or or all like the pieces of the goal that you did and so it's really weird in that way but also it does feel you know having played all of these you know fairly recently in, in a run it feels very like that's affirming in some ways, right? For mm-hmm. someone who's like really invested in the franchise, which is like, yeah, this is what you used to have to do. That, <laughs> that is Assassin's Creed 2. You had to do that kind of stuff in Assassin's Creed 2 Brotherhood Revelations, right? Um, and so in some ways, it's like there's a big chunk of the audience where this is what they've been missing. And that audience has been very vocal, uh, especially over the past six years or whatever, since we started with Origins. And they're getting what they wanted. And I do think that this is a test for, all right, well, what kind of stuff can the, you know, can this next version of the thing look like? And this is kind of coming out simultaneously around the same time as Jade, the mobile Mm -hmm. um, going to, you know, it's a 3D Assassin's Creed on mobile. Um, And that one's set in China, right? It's set in China, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I haven't, a lot of people have had a chance to do hands-on with that. And I think there's an open beta, maybe a, private beta or something like that there's a lot of chatter about it but that's another kind of test okay can you do this and assassin's creed mirage is coming to ios in the next year yeah next it's gonna spring? be like run natively like on the the new I, uh, ipads and and iphones um it's right. like a full 60 dollar. well i guess i guess 50 dollar game <laughs> right and so that's part of it too is like i think that if you if you look at the game by itself it's like oh this is a really everything about this is weird right like throwback mechanical simplicity i think that's a big part of it right really a linear kind of way of engaging with the world you want to be in stealth and if you're not you're in trouble you know that kind of stuff i think it starts making more sense when you're looking at the kind of media ecology you know the relationships that are going on here with ubisoft which is like okay can you make a kind of delimited assassin's creed that you could build off of that can go to all these different platforms and be experienced by lots of different audiences and then what are the pain points and then can you fix those in a minimum way and then that's like the minimum viable assassin's creed so the whole thing to me feels like a test uh what will people go for and you know like it seems like maximalism is not the way it went Weirdly enough, Valhalla, you know, it, it made a billion dollars. It hit a billion dollars, I think, a year and a half after release. It's a hugely popular game. Um, and it has a massive time on the device. You know, I, I read for the book. I read all of the uh, the Ubisoft 
investor reports going back like as long as I could find on the website, right? And Valhalla is just blowing everything out of the water. It's like kind of wild, it, even though their console games only they, their console game profits make up less than fifty percent of their their total profits. You know, mobile is still annihilating everything here. Um, but so it feels like okay, well, in a world where Ubisoft, for reasons that we've already talked about in this episode, has really hard time a really hard time recruiting keeps telling their investors that they want to increase headcount by, you know, substantial percentages and they need to make more stuff. You, you know, there's all of this. Well, how do you do that? And it's maybe piecemeal content that looks like this over longer periods of time structured with something like infinity, which is unclear. Is that a game or is that a platform? You know, I, I, I don't know where Jason is on the reporting on that yet, but I, I think the last time that anyone talked about it, it was still very unclear what the imaginary was for how Infinity would link together live service kind of stuff. So this feels like it's a part of that that just didn't fit in or is is a test to start it out, and we'll see what happens. But as a game, it's, like, perfectly fine. Yeah, it's, per, it's yeah perfectly fine. It's like, And I mean that in, like, the most complimentary way mm-hmm. possible. I think uh, Same, there, are, yeah. there are people who are going to play this game and be delighted by and I, th- I think it's interesting that you might you phrase it as uh like minimally viable assassin's creed because i think you can actually tie that into a larger discussion on game development and costs and scale on like what is the minimum viable triple a game right like one of the more interesting things that came out of the like ftc fight that uh, microsoft had was a like memo from phil spencer that was like hey like the take twos of the world that can just pour hundreds of millions of dollars into these games and succeed on scale and fidelity. Like that is just like we, like we, there are so few that can do that. We can't like, that is just not sustainable. Things like all the layoffs we've had this year are like a part of that conversation. And like something that's going like a dam that is going to break eventually in some small ways and big ways, invisible ways, invisible ways is how do you create like like what is minimum viable triple a game like what will the audience take like because this this is budget assassin's creed and it still yeah. looks gorgeous like baghdad yeah. looks uh, like the sunsets the water like there are so many times in this game that it looks just breathtaking um but like the like the animation like the care like the performance capture like you can just tell like this isn't the, what they're putting into Valhalla and like uh, right. the, like the other games that are like I think Assassin's Creed Red um, or where that ends up getting called. But like, mm. what will Hex, people? Hex yeah. is also one that's like on the docket. I think. Yeah, like what will people? What will they take? Like, and because you can imagine then, like companies will keep making these big bets, these ones that take five, six, seven years, a whole generation of a console to produce, which is probably what it's uh, like inf- like Assassin's Creed Infinity is. But then something like Mirage is well. You can imagine this game. I don't know how long it took to make, like what its origins are. But like, if you told me it took three years to make, I would believe you because it seems like a game accomplishable on that scale relative to these, these other big budget projects that take like a whole console cycle. And so I think it, it has to be seen as like a broader shot by the industry to try and understand how can we make a game that feels like a spectacle? It's a big release, but it's not it doesn't require the same risk and investment. And can we still eke out like meaningful profits on it? And maybe where it ends up is what you're talking about. It's like, it's just a, a peg in infinity, which is like, Hey, there's a branch that is 
classic AC and like that's the style of game that that slots in here or is this actually like these are the, like we can't make an AC game every year anymore it doesn't matter how many resources we throw at it how many how much human capital mm-hmm. we invest you just cannot make games at the scale of Valhalla every single year but you probably mm-hmm. could make a mirage in between those games and will the audience show up for that that i don't know i kind of hope they do because i do think ubisoft is not like there's a way of calling this cheap but it's like it's it's scoped appropriately like it's not absolutely it is cheap in the again cheap complimentary like it is like cheap because like it it was scoped to be this style of game and i think they i think they more or less nailed it like and yes it's just a matter of like how do people take that and is that audience that you're talking about or like well, the, the, there's a big chunk of the the audience that uh, has wanted a game like this. Well, it's like, well, big relative to what pie, you know right. what I mean? Um, right. And and because I, I think the AC pie has gotten really big in the Origins mm-hmm. Odyssey uh, Valhalla era to a degree that uh, I hope this does well because I'd love to see Ubisoft and other companies look at a game like this in the same way that was the the Uncharted one, um, Lost Legacy. Lo- um, yeah, Lost Legacy. You know, other yeah. than the uh, <laughs> blackface, we'll just move on past that part of uh, that game. But I love that game because it's just, it's scoped in a really fun way. It's like, here's a 10 to 15 hour adventure that's just really good. And like, I feel like this game is in conversation with games like that. And I wish there were more of yeah. them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, the, um, I, it's a weird thing right because like in some ways they have been making one of these a year since valhalla they they're just called dlc for valhalla right (laughs) like i mean you know you play the siege of paris or whatever and that's that's a big thing right or you play like the odyssey like tripartite um you know all the going all the way to atlantis stuff and that the atlantis dlc for odyssey might be 10 hours i mean it's long yeah they're like uh, it's a thing. Full games called DLC. <laughs> right. And so maybe this is just in, in some ways, this is just being like, well, we're doing that already. So do we need to like bind it to this other big product that right. you feel like you need to to buy on sale in order to get access to these? Um, can we just release it as a full thing? And I think you're right. I mean, it, the the scoping question, we have not even talked about this. Right. But th- so this is. Uh, ninth century Baghdad. <laughs> You're playing a character named uh, Basim, um, and Basim is a, a thief uh, who um, is working implicitly for the Hidden Ones, and then uh, who are the, the precursor for the assassins, and then gets recruited into them. And so you start doing assassin stuff. I don't want to talk too much about it going further in because also. If you're a listener here and you've kind of fallen off the Assassin's Creed wagon or you've never given it a shot, you are more likely to complete this game than you are for any of the previous like <laughs> five. If you start it, I promise you that with a you know a little bit of time, you'll actually get through it. Whereas I can't say that about Odyssey. Um, I don't think that like I wonder what the completion rate is for Odyssey. It's got to be oh. extremely low. But I mean, Valhalla, uh, I, I really liked uh, Odyssey uh, or um, Origins? Origins. Origins. I loved, yeah. I loved Origins. Played a ton of that. Mm-hmm. Then I was just like, I cannot do another one of these so quickly. Skims mm-hmm. uh, Odyssey. And it was like, ah, like it's been four years. Time for me to play a long Assassin's Creed game. And I played about like 10 hours of Valhalla, like had it like cook- hooked up mm-hmm. through Stadia so I could play it on my iPad, like while my kids so were. So you got through the tutorial, I think. Yeah. You, you got well, to see, England. I, 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 <laughs> I, I like, I played about 10 hours and looked up. I was like, well, like if I just mainline it, like what's the main quest line? It was like 55 hours. I was like, oh, okay, I'm turning that off. I yeah. like, didn't play another yeah. minute. And I realized my reaction to that is different than 
lots of other people, it's like 55 hours, like, let's go, you know, yeah. but for me, and I realize that's increasingly the AC audience, like, yes. like that bigger pie is, as you mentioned, like the fandom, certain, like, this is their Madden, like, they play mm-hmm. yes. this game yeah. all year, and the checklist is part of the fun, they love being in the world, like, doesn't matter how, you know, small the task may seem, to me, person who wants to play 30 to 40 games a year, but for mm-hmm. them, it's like they're playing one to two. And Assassin's Creed is going to be the game that they play on evenings and weekends for most of the calendar. Yeah. And I, I do think that, that, that these kind of like broader questions, because I, I think what's interesting about this conversation is that the most notable thing about Mirage is like its position in the games economy, the way it is developed, <laughs> yeah. the yeah. kind of sca- scope and scale. Like th- those are the most interesting things because generally it'd be like, if we talked about the plot, it's like you meet, you meet a person. <laughs> They are aligned with the assassins or they're not. You do some <laughs> yeah. stuff for them. There's some cutscenes. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm working on a written piece about the game, um, you know, that'll be out at some point soon. And there's some like nitty gritty historical stuff in this game. It's extremely weird uh, to me. There, the um, large, a big chunk of it takes place around the Zanj Rebellion. Um, and Zanj Rebellion is generally understood to be the largest slave revolt in history before Haiti, before the, the, the Haitian Revolution. Um, takes place in Baghdad, takes place in Iraq uh, around this time, but in real history took place a little bit later than this game um, in a pretty different political context. And so there's just an interesting thing happening where Assassin's Creed uh, tends to be, um, they have the, I think they call it the 32nd rule. Um, as long as the the information, this is something that the developers talk about and have talked about for years, as long as the information that you are being given is correct, you know, that you can look it up in 30 seconds and it can be correct, then that's generally what they stick with. But there's some like really interesting maneuvers that are happening here and some uh, pretty direct uh, language things going on where like. Sometimes people are servants. Sometimes people are laborers. Sometimes people are slaves. Um, And that shakes out in different ways in different contexts in this game, almost as if they couldn't decide the way they wanted to actually position it. Uh, Zanj Rebellion is also a religious rebellion in some ways. Um, And that shows up. Have you done the quest with Ali where you're like leading the rebels or the rebels? I I just just rescued him out of jail and we'll be starting that quest chain. Yeah. uh, So it's the next mission. This is really early in the game or fairly early. But, you know, they're like running around being like, God is good. God is great. And if you don't know anything about this kind of moment in history, you're like, oh, it's really interesting. It's not really Assassin's Creed thing to be like, God is good. God is great. Uh You know, and why are they yelling that to these other people? Right. Who are theoretically also religious in the thing. So uh, I'm saying all that to say that Assassin's Creed's historical kind of, you know, we are a game made by a a team of multicultural faiths and sexualities (laughs) and all that, that that runs this kind of ideology about like, Hey, we're, this is about world history and everybody. And we're going to kind of position it. It runs into some real issues when you end up making games about uh, really pointed political moments in history. And the way that you read those pointed political moments in history really kind of determines like how you understand history to have worked, right? Like Mm -hmm. calling the Zanj rebellion explicitly in the game, a slave rebellion would be very different from how the game portrays it currently. And so I'm, I'm, Working on some writing about it, people can read that at some point soon, but um, that is frictional in a way that Assassin's Creed historically isn't, and I do wonder, well, is that part of the scope and scale issue, right? Because they tend to be fairly careful, um, especially around these things. Also, a big part of the Assassin's Creed game are the assassins themselves. Uh, 
the assassins are a, that's a um, derogatory term uh, that was used um, within the Middle East um, uh, and then eventually into Europe for the Nazari Ismailis, who are a very particular religious sect who still exist like they, they're still around uh, uh, in the world. And so in if if you're doing, you know, games later on, if you know you're in Renaissance Italy, that feels a little bit different from this game set in the ninth century when the real Nazari Ismailis were around and doing things, right? And similar with Assassin's Creed 1. So all the way back with Assassin's Creed 1, they kind of make this decision to divert from history to kind of print the legend and not the reality. And then we have this whole fictional universe you know, brought together, but then to return to that moment with this very particular kind of political or ideological message that Ubisoft has, and then not treat that more seriously, right? That like the assassins, what we call the assassins, the Nazarius Malis, are a religious sect. And in the moment that Alamut is being built, which is part of the beginning of this game, that mattered a lot. They were creating a religious conclave, right? Alamut is that in Syria, in what is now Syria. So, um, there's just some, oh no, Alamut is in, in, in Iran. So Masyaf is the one that is being built here. So anyway, that's all to say the, this scope scale question, whatever's going on there, uh, starts looking really, really weird in this context uh, of this game in particular that returns to the origin moment of Assassin's Creed and yet really turns away from, I don't know, the, the historical thinking that we've seen for nearly 15 years, you know? Um, they put a lot of effort into making Renaissance Italy right. You know, they put a lot of effort into making um, uh, industrial London right. Um, and the kind of slipshod care here around some of those issues that they had the opportunity to go back and really think through uh, really sticks out to me, just content-wise. But everything else is, as you said, buttery smooth. You're on a quest. You're doing the things you got to do in the quest. Uh, you know, I bet he's going to realize, I haven't finished the game yet, but I bet he's going to realize... The assassins weren't all that he thought they were. Those hidden ones. They're not even the assassins yet in this game. They're still hidden ones, by the way. But There might um, have been wheels within wheels. Right. Oh, yeah. Wow. What are, you're telling me there are these ones who came before? Oh, interesting. Wow. But yeah, so it's cool. I'm not mad I'm playing it. All right, well, Cam, I look forward to reading your final verdict on the, uh, on, on the game. I wish... I wish this approach sounded I wish the overall just description of how it plays I wish it that sounded better to me for what they're for what they're I, doing. again I'm, I, I'm, I think the game you want Rob is the game they can't really make which is like recon like rethinking what does an old style Assassin's Creed game what would that be that's a much more ambitious like project than what, yeah. what this is which is kind of just transporting a certain logic into the present because you could do something that like rethought that original style kind of brought it up to code like what is the what have we learned in in the years since yeah. and that's that's really not what's happening here it is definitely a, a throwback game in in so many ways and if that doesn't if that's not a like there's nothing here for you if that like if that like position isn't immediately appealing, there's nothing yeah. you're gonna like peel back the layers of on this game and go like ah oh, ha like yeah. And I think it's also I just need to impose discipline on my approaches to modern open world games because the truth is I do like the sprawl of a Valhalla or mm -hmm. uh, you know a uh, Odyssey. Like I, I enjoy the shit out of those games. Eventually, I just get mired in the inertia of 
the C tier quests that I keep finding myself doing. And I'm like, this is like we were we had a good thing going here and now this story feels adrift and I'm not really like I've lost, I've, I've literally lost the plot. I don't know what, like what's the, what's the key story here. And I think the earlier games were just better at, because they were smaller in scale. Mm-hmm. They were better at keeping the eye on the prize of like, remember this is a revenge story. And it's like, yeah, it yes. is. let's go, yeah. let's go take that revenge. And later on, it's increasingly like, Hey, here's a guy. You need some help with some stuff. You wanna? Uh, the, yeah. Oh, stranger, can you can you help me move my couch? Uh, only <laughs> only an assassin could. Hey, uh, well, Rob, actually, maybe you would like this game because there. Do you like block puzzles? This game has got a whole got bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got. Uh, can... I lost my tea. My tea's over there. You want to get my box of tea and bring it back? That's a straight up Ezio mission. You know, that's, that is a straight up <laughs> Assassin's Creed Two style mission. So there, there, you know, that, there's some of that in there. That's you know fun i guess yeah something see rob you just need to play these games like my buddy uh does which is he gets new assassin's creeds are like his games like are these open world like kind of checklist games and he i think the way he played origins or odyssey was to uh got into it you know uh got on a horse opened up the entire map did every little non main like did not go to the first main quest (laughs) did everything else on the map check Check, oh my God. check literally everything and then started the main quest and finished it in a couple of hours because they were like level, you know, 99 or whatever at that point with all the best stuff. And then you you can focus on the revenge story. There's nothing to That's be distracted right. by. All the icons right. are You've helped all the poor schleps who are just like, <laughs> yeah, the, the schmoes. There's some guy who lost his camel. You got to go find it. Yeah, if you do like all that stuff first, then you're you're set to go. Mm-hmm. but but you know thinking about that stuff a lot of that's just pared down in this game right yeah. like uh in, in terms of stuff to do outside of the main quest line there are those contracts that you mentioned patrick that they're very simple they're not you side escort quests. this guy you know, 10 feet yay <laughs> yeah walk the guy to place go to a location pick up an object uh go and assassinate someone i think that's the three types there yeah. might be one other type that i'm blanking on um other stuff in the world, there are some golden boxes with loot in them. You see them on the map? Go see what you can do. See if you can find those bad boys. Um, there are things you can pickpocket. I really like the pickpocketing minigame in this, which is just like you're walking through the crowd because he's Basm's a thief. And, uh, you know, you get the little thing and you hit it and there's this little, like, uh, uh, triangle or diamond that, like, goes in and you have to time it correctly to do it. And if you don't, they start yelling for the guards and you get in trouble. And that's it. That's like the stuff to do. Go mm-hmm. find stuff in the world. D- d- you know, uh, and you can ignore some... a lot. Like I, I think part of what Rob is getting at is that it's yeah. hard to ignore some of the side stuff in these open world yeah. by design. They want you to get mm-hmm. distracted yeah. and go spend eight hours on a different path. Whereas here, mm-hmm. you don't actually need like the gear upgrades, which are hidden in these chests. Like they're nice, no. they're fine, but like you can play the game just fine without them and so if it's there's really not like you when you do these synch- like the synchronization points you know you climb mm-hmm. to the top of a thing and like oh it fills out the map with the extra stuff you can do it's like i don't yeah. know man there's like 12 historical sites which are like these little glowing dots that will give you a paragraph about the area do you want to do that no okay like you're good man just don't even do it just go to the next quest objective like yeah. it makes it very the funnel is like much easier to follow. They are not like actively trying to dangle 
little uh, shiny objects in front of you. Like there's other things to do, but really the shiny object is just the main quest line, which by all accounts from reading other reviewers, if you sort of stick to that, it's like a 12 hour game. Like you can be done with it comfortably in a weekend if you, yeah, if you th- want to be. Yeah. I think I've yeah put somewhere between 10 and 15 into it, or maybe a little bit more than that. And that's mostly just like tinkering around and doing stuff. And I believe I have one final like, yeah, like thing to do. I think I'm, I'm 90% of the way there. Um, yeah, it, it notably too. I mean, just to kind of reiterate the point you just made, Patrick, there's not a quest log. There's no list of quests. There's the, like, it's uh, called Investigations, and it's this map. It's got basically five quadrants, or, you know, not, it can't be five quadrants. It's got five areas, and there's, like, four on the the sides, and then there's one in the middle, and they all kind of funnel in, and they all have, like, a bad guy associated with them, and there's, like, the contracts have their own little area, and uh, the, like, precursor artifacts got its own little area in the map, but it's not like, uh uh-oh, I need to, like, look at my checklist as you're saying of like stuff to do there's none of that it's like hey you at any given moment you might have three possible things to do so if you want to do them that's great but yeah i imagine the full completion time for this game like a hundred percent everything in the game might be 30 hours yeah which is wild because that it just like just kind of spits in the face of how these triple a games are designed is like we you need like it may not be a live service game but you're going to be here for yeah. 60 to 70 hours uh even if you don't end up purchasing anything else mm-hmm. and also it's not filled with like valhalla and those like they have all sorts of other microtransactions stuffed into yeah. them right for like xp boosters for different mm-hmm. cosmetics i didn't dig super deep in the menus here but like i don't think anything like that is well, so here. those are never those are never available before launch okay. for ubisoft games so you can't see them yet all so right. i mean i guess we could look today i haven't looked since yeah it I'll, 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 report, I'll report but, back next week if i when i right. boot this game up tonight and it's like hey man yeah we opened up the ubisoft shop but i i guess part of what it's like i don't see a ton of no opportunities for them to like meaningfully double down on monetization like there aren't the same sort of friction points where like I, you would want to necessarily spend money other than like i don't know i guess unlocking the skill tree but like that's not really they yeah. gate that through story stuff as well so i, yeah, I don't even no, think that would necessarily also work. worth noting right like in the past few assassin's creed games you got new skills and abilities by leveling up literally in an rpg sense here when you complete an investigation you get skill points and you can spend them on whatever you want to do and so narratively you're being gated much like in the original assassin's creed yep. game or in assassin's creed 2 um it's not it's not it is not effort gated right you can't go run around the map and do all this kind of stuff and just put as much effort as you want in and then return to the story it is story progress gated it feels like a ps2 game in that regard <laughs> For which sure. is also kind of refreshing like i was playing i was like okay cool like I, there is no obligation because in some of the previous Assassin's Creed games, you'd be like, ah, oh, I'm having a hard time with this. I should probably go level up. Like, I should go and, like, get a couple more combat A horrible skills. feeling. That'll make it just the worst. The worst feeling. Like, absolute garbage gaming. You know what I mean? But here, I'm, I've never hit a point where I was like, I can't do it. It's, it has it's always been strategy, right? And not game mechanic. And that's cool to me, right? That, like... Oh, maybe I'm just going in this this fortress wrong, right? You know, I've died twice. What am I doing here? I'm going the wrong way. Let me go around the other way and like look for a hole in the fence. That's good. That that is good game design to mm-hmm. to make it about execution and thoughtfulness and application of the tools in front of you as opposed to I'll just go get the fire spear maneuver and I'll like shoot <laughs> fire into their body from 40 meters and we'll all be good, right? Like um but yeah. I 
one one final thing to say about this, that uh, without going on forever is that lots of people very critical of the past couple games because of their use of big quotation marks magic like inexplicable abilities you know why would Cassandra be able to shoot a fire spear into people all that kind of stuff none of that in this game mm. in case you're mm-hmm. concerned in case you are the magic hater of the Assassin's Creed universe we're more grounded here it's just Wait, ancient that's aliens right. that's right. Are they still doing the thing where, like, you have different types of bow and arrow, where, like, one's a shotgun, one's an SMG, mm-hmm. one's There's a... no bow and arrow, buddy. No. Okay, great. You have There's a, knife. a dagger. Yeah, yeah, you have a knife and a dagger. See, this is... Okay, now, mm-hmm. yeah, now now my attention mm-hmm. is... My you got a throwing knife mm-hmm. that you can do that. You only get a few of them. You get, like, six or something. Uh, I... Uh, very Assassin's Creed 2 in that regard. I sped through. You're talking about the... Because uh, you can upgrade your items, you know, your weapons, your equipment... I raced on the equipment side to use the blow dart, you know, classic Assassin's Creed fun thing to use to get the the berserk dart, you know, that makes people attack their own buddy. And that's, the most, it. that's the most useful uh, bit in the entire game. It's oh, like, of course. You see six guards and it's like, OK, this is going to be my distraction tool. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it why works. use a that's noisemaker cool to make right? them go five feet when I can get them to all kill each other? Right. And that's the cool thing is that do- that will work. You know what I mean? Like there are some AI stuff in this game that, as you're saying, it's a little clunky. There's a lot of kind of maneuvering stuff that I feel like is is overtuned. If it were 15 percent less responsive, it would probably actually work a lot better. Um, but that kind of stuff of like, all right, there's a bunch of guards. They're standing in front of this doorway. I'm going to make them fight each other and I'll sneak by. And it works. And like, that's cool. You know, that's it has a real and I mentioned immersive Sims earlier. Um, it's not quite there, but it does have a kind of dishonoredy feeling about it sometimes where you're like, Oh, for sure. I have these tools in front of me and if I know how to use them, I can actually accomplish this kind of goal I have by getting them involved with the tools. Um, you know, the rules, the rules of the game world feel appropriate and matched and predictable, which is always a fun feeling. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there and uh, that will conclude another episode of Remap Radio. The theme song is Moments Pause by Two Mellow. You can check out his work uh, at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can follow everything we do at Remap Radio on Twitch, Blue Sky, Twitter, YouTube, and other platforms. On YouTube, you got to use the little at thing. Once again, we rely on our audience for support, and you can sign up to become a backer by going to remapradio.com and following the links and instructions you see there. Uh, This week, backers got to hear me talk about maybe almost dying at Disney, but maybe also just getting way too drunk and then having a minor freak out. Hard to hard to say who, who, who can, can say <laughs> who really knows what happened uh, at the at the pool of the Polynesian. Uh, no streams this week. Uh, it's been we're working on some other stuff and Kata has been out. So it's been been a quiet week for that. There will be uh, like sort of a turn to a return to more normal service uh in the next in the next week or so and also some uh new stuff rolling out so stay tuned for that we'll be back next week with another episode of remap radio until then thanks so much for choosing to spend some of your time with us and fuck capitalism go home <laughs>